I will praise it more in just a few minutes. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Long Road to Ruin. I am still your special guest interim host, Mr. Robert Winfrey. And thank you all again so very much for joining us here. And uh, this is starting my final run here as the uh, special interim guest host for <laughs> The Long Road to Ruin. We got this week, then uh, the wrap-up show a couple of weeks from now, and then I'm gone for a little bit of time, I would assume. Uh, Mark Radlich is returning to his baby, and I'm more than happy to step aside. This is the third show I'm running at the moment, folks. I'm just a tad thin here. But I love this show. I'm happy to fill in, and I will have some kind of a temporary farewell for you all next week. Well, I'm sure you're all cheering my inevitable demise. But I tend to think that way. All right. Well, since I tend to be the guy who comes on for horror franchises around here, because Mark no likes the scary... It's okay, Mark. I don't like romantic comedies. You don't like the scary. We're all good. Uh, We're tackling Nightmare on Elm Street franchise for the next couple of editions here on The Long Road to Ruin, and given the number of movies in this particular franchise, myself and Sean Comer, who I'm going to bring on in just a second, we decided to revive what I refer to as the Hellraiser format. Now, what that means, uh, for those of you who don't know, when Sean and I tackled Hellraiser last October... We did not split the movies up along chronological lines. We did the good movies, and then we did the bad movies. Because, again, there's seven or eight films in that franchise, and we don't want to go along the lines, because it would have been so up and down and uneven. And that's what we're doing again tonight. So tonight, for everyone out there, you get the good ones. All of the good movies in the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. We get to have fun, we get to praise them... Maybe a few nitpicks here and there, because, hey, why not? Well, yeah, it's the Internet. If you can't be a little bit negative, what's the point, right? But that's our basic premise, so uh, you get three, possibly four movies tonight. We're going to see how things go. The fourth is kind of up in the air. But that's our basic setup, so without further ado, I'll bring in uh, the man from the Fortress of Seanitude himself, Mr. Sean Comer. How you doing, Sean? Hey there, hi there, ho there, everybody. I'm Sean, you're not, and I think that sooner rather than later, it's about time for you to possibly pick up the Fortress of Seanitude and move. All right. Well, hey, as long as you take it with you, right? Oh, oh, well, yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm certainly not leaving Phoenix. I don't have any intention of ever living anywhere else, but... Yeah, I think it's time probably, it's probably going to be my last year here. I'm kind of looking around Mesa, and I'm getting tired of how even after about six, seven, eight months of road construction, it still looks super crappy. So uh, It never ends. It never, uh, yeah. ever ends. Yeah, business is going under all around me. I'm, I'm thinking about speeding up my plans to move up the highway about 15 minutes. Um Hey, before we get too deep into the show, though, I have just a couple of quick announcements and clarifications i got to make. Last week, brief correction to my plugs, I mentioned that right away when Mark Rodlich comes back in July, we're going to be going right into Batman the Animated Series. I was incorrect in that. I forgot about the fact that when he comes back, we are actually going to first be doing Transformers. More than meets the eye? Uh, well, depending on how much is meeting the eye with uh, Michael Bay's Parkinson's Syndrome-inspired camera work. But, so that's correction number one. Correction number two, I might have given the wrong impression about how we were going about Batman the Animated Series. We are going to do 
four episodes, one season per episode. Uh, Mark kind of caught me after the show and pointed out how it came across, like I was talking about how we were going to be doing one episode per show. Crikey, fuck no. Uh, There's a couple that deserve their own shows, right? Oh, don't get, oh, don't get me wrong. We're going to be highlighting certain episodes along the way. But there is absolutely no way. We would become nothing but talking about Batman the Animated Series because that show, you got to remember, it was four seasons, but we're not talking four 22, 24-episode seasons. This was back when a season of an animated show meant more like about 30, 35 shows. Yeah. So there's a lot of Batman to go through. And last but um, everybody out there, some of you like to play the home game. Some of you like to message me on Facebook and whatnot during the show. Message Winfrey this time. Because, <laughs> All right. well, well, since I'm oh, going to no. be multitasking a little bit during the show, I am actually going to be using an app on my computer that forces me to stay on task by blocking Facebook, and then every time I try to visit it, giving me a white screen with black text that just says, and I quote, shouldn't you be working? <laughs> Or oh. everyone bomb Sean with messages, and he'll just have that scrolling across the screen for the next two years. Well, hey, or even better, um, if you go to Facebook, you can actually probably go play with our brand new Facebook admin. Because, God, has to be the last little announcement in there. Uh, doing this many shows for all of us is exhausting, especially since so many of us go back and forth between shows, we guest on each other's shows. Mark and I have got a new show that's in development. I'm going to be on the Whiskey Rebellion every so often when he brings it back. So I talked to Mark, and I talked to a friend of mine and loyal fan of ours, longtime fan, even longer-time friend of mine, and said, I think we could do with somebody to maybe handle the Facebook page on a regular basis. So by all means, go stop by the Long Road to Ruin Facebook page, just look for the title card to identify us. And go say hi to admin and superfan Jackie. She's going to be handling, giving you guys lots of spiffy new content to talk about film franchises, reminding you when shows are coming up. I'll still, Mark and I, and I'm sure Robert and Robert will still pop on occasionally. But basically, ugh. We're just a little busy sometimes, and we have to, you know, lend ourselves to you, but give ourselves to ourselves. And the rest of the time, we're just going to let Jackie deal with you. <laughs> All right. So we have our so, own unpaid intern now. Woohoo! Uh, well, you know what? We're we're kind of growing as a little bit of a cottage industry because we got four, we got four main people who are kind of the decision makers, and we got several other hosts, and then we got. Our title card artist, Ben. Well, speaking of, I don't want to leave him on hold forever. I've got to bring him on here. So, uh, God, yeah, he's the host you. I'm, I'm sorry, Ben. <laughs> All right. Uh, he wanted to join us. He does the wonderful title card art for us uh, here at the Long Road to Ruin, unless he has other commitments that actually pay him, and we don't begrudge him that. But including this one, which is awesome, in part because I get to zing Sean just a little bit. But... Uh, Please welcome everybody, Benjamin Cologne, to our podcast. How you doing, Ben? And sorry for the long wait. 
Good evening, guys. No problem. Um, Skype doesn't like me, apparently. Um, yeah, Skype's a pain in the ass, more often than not. So I am uh, coming to you from my ancient five, six-year-old cell phone. I was hoping you were going to say rotary. I, I, I dream I'm of sure the day when someone calls into us with a rotary phone. I'm sure there's an app for that. <laughs> More than likely. All right, everybody, you know, let's... Uh... Actually, before we get to talking about the movies, though, if, if you don't mind me delaying us just a little bit, I would feel terribly ashamed if we neglected to have Ben tell some of the stories behind behind this month's absolutely gorgeous title card. Yeah, by all means. Oh, we're, we're getting into that already? Oh, man. Um, yeah, we'll put you on the spot early. We'll, we'll break you in gently, right? <laughs> Give you a 30-minute segment. Oh, well, we, man, we, I wish it. Because, I mean, you've been on Winfrey's show, but the first time you've been on ours. So, Yeah, That's I was true. saying, you know, uh, real quick for the record, uh, Sean and I talk online all the time. Um, this is the first verbal communication he and I have ever had, um, which is kind of funny because I think a lot of it, especially probably in part two, is going to consist mostly of, you know, I'm going to have to disagree with you on that one, Sean. <laughs> but that's okay. Uh, More than okay. Um, Yeah, this title card, okay. I had this crazy idea um, a couple of months ago. Um, I had planned, you know, I had planned way ahead of time. I was going to attend um, Chiller Theater Convention, it's a horror convention in, in Parsippany, New Jersey, that I've been to a couple of times before. It's a good time. They've got plenty of, you know, cool stuff. Every, you know, uh, they do it twice a year. They have interesting guests, uh, you know, uh, dealers that have all kinds of cool stuff, uh, horror-related stuff, sci-fi, comics. They have DVDs, posters, original artwork, T-shirts, name it, they got it. Um, this year I uh, found out, and I kept tabs on this because this was not the first time it was announced uh uh, but uh, apparently, you know, I found out that Heather Langenkamp was going to be there this year, uh, and I have always wanted to meet her. You know, I, I, uh, I'm, you know, well, we'll get into this in just a moment, I'm sure. But I'm a huge, huge Nightmare on Elm Street fan. That's, it's, uh, you know, Robert can attest to my love of Spider-Man, but uh, Freddy Krueger is kind of neck and neck as far as like, you know, key components of my childhood. Um, so. I had this kind of crazy idea. I was thinking, and, you know, uh, Sean had announced, you know, you guys were doing Nightmare on Elm Street for Long Road to Ruin, and I, uh, you know, was gonna, uh, there was no way I was not going to do the title card for that. And I decided, um, what if I got the title card done in time to bring a print of it to Heather Langenkamp at the convention? So that's what I did. <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, I think it's been, po uh, it was posted on the Facebook page a little while ago. Um, if, uh, if I get a chance in a little while, I guess I can repost it. Um, but yeah, she, uh, she seems to really like it. She's for, by the way, she's a total sweetheart. Any, I've heard, I've had friends that have met her that, uh, you know, can attest that she's just, you know, the sweetest person you'll ever meet. And 
100% true. She loved the she loved the artwork. I was able to I had it laminated. I gave her a print of it. Um, she signed my poster. She signed my DVD. She posed for a picture. It was a total fanboy moment. I was trying not to make a complete idiot of myself. Um, as far as all of you know, I didn't. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was it was a good time. Um, the that was the good part of it. The bad part of it was that this was uh, by far the worst convention I've ever been to. <laughs> in terms of how how it was organized, I don't know if how I don't know how much of the story has reached you, Robert, but um, I was actually waiting outside the building. This takes place. This convention takes place, uh, you know, twice a year at the uh, Parsippany, New Jersey Hilton. Usually, it's not that hard to manage because there's not that uh, you know big of uh, of a crowd you know problem. This year, they made the idiotic mistake of holding this play, this convention in the same venue while inviting many, many more guests, including about half the cast of The Walking Dead, including Norman Reedus, and half the cast of Sons of Anarchy, including uh, Tommy Flanagan. Um, this was so we basically crippled the appeal of the convention and kept the location the same. Yeah. And it went about as well as you might expect. Um, there were easily about two or three hundred people waiting outside to get in uh, before the convention even began on Saturday morning. Uh, it filled to capacity in you know before you know before it even officially opened. We were stuck outside. I was I personally was stuck outside for about five hours. I think it was. Oh um, man. If I hadn't had come, if I hadn't come such a long way, I probably would have left. But I kind of, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. I guess you would say. Um, eventually, you know, there were so many people that just got sick of, you know, the crowd and sick of everything. There were a few people that were coming out. I think this one guy and you know this girl that he was with um, were leaving, and, and everything is done by wristband. So basically, I just got off the line that I was waiting in that was circling several blocks. And I asked the guy, uh, you know, you know, dude, you you done for the day? You going home? Uh, you know, how much you want for those wristbands? And he was like, you know, I'll give you both of them for twenty bucks. And I'm like, and I said, sold. Um, so he sold me his wristband, and I walked right into the convention, and I had a good time with the remainder of the time that uh, I left. Uh, and I was very happy that I was only giving that guy money, and I gave absolutely no money whatsoever to Chiller Theater Convention because they completely screwed up this time, and they pissed off a great number of people who were waiting in line, some of whom I'm pretty sure were actual bikers, so that could have gotten, you know, ugly. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, it ended up working out okay. I, I missed Heather Lancamp and... Uh, Ronnie Blakely, who plays her mom in the first uh, movie, um, they actually did a panel discussion that I was really trying, to, I really wanted to see. I ended up missing that, which really sucked. Uh, that was, you know, that sucks. You know, waiting in line outside sucked, but I ended up having a good time with what time we had left. So, I, you know, I guess it all worked out for the best. Uh, like I said, I met, you know, I got to meet Heather. That was that was pretty cool, and. Um, yeah, she loved the uh, she loved the artwork, and um, you know I've, I've got it. Uh, I've got a picture to uh, prove it. Oh, we're all grateful for that. And let me just say, I know Sean was, but seeing 
you know, seeing her holding something that was going to go up on our show and something that you had created for us, it was a little bit surreal and really awesome as a fan of the series to see that. So uh, thank you uh, on my behalf, you know, just from me, and I'm sure Sean will thank you as well in just a second when I let him talk again. But thanks oh, for going sure, through oh, all sure. that. Well, uh, yeah. not only thanks for the card, not only thanks for the card, but thanks for braving that convention to get it signed. Even though I know it was obviously more uh, understandably a thing that you were doing for you more than for us, but as I can attest, sort of secondhand, because my ex-fiance uh, sells a lot of handmade jewelry at conventions, as I can attest from some of the tales she's told me, if you ever want to see something, throw in it. Otherwise, organized orderly event at a rational bunch of people into total cuckoo for Cocoa Pops Nanners chaos, put them within spitting distance of a Walking Dead cast member, especially Norman Reedus. Yeah, can I say, by the way, like, you know, props to Norman Reedus. I heard, like, he had to cancel a day of the convention because he was filming something, I think, on that Sunday um, but he ended up, you know, to make up for it, he stayed overtime signing autographs. From what I was told, he was up in, you know, because they do this in private suites so that, you know, that things don't get too crazy. Apparently, fr- the Friday night before I got there, he was out. He was signing autographs and posing for pictures till about, like, 12 or 1 in the morning. So, you know, props to that guy. He's, you know, he, he at least knows how to treat his fans. Oh, yeah, I, I've heard Norman is just a sport and a half when it comes to this stuff, and just, just braving all the madness just to meet Sam. So. Yeah, part of me wonders if he knows his character's going to die in the near future, so he's just milking it while he can. <laughs> well, could you blame him? Not at all, and I'm a horrible person for suggesting that. Which is, and It's now going to come true, and all of the fangirls are going to like want my blood. Uh fuck them. Your show is overrated. Blase zombie fiction anyway. Yeah, watch it. I like the, sh- I like the show. Watch it a little bit. Alright, but let's <laughs> devolve into screaming at each other. Over <laughs> over The Walking Dead. If we're going to scream at each other, let's do it over at least the series we've advertised as talking about. Yeah. Alright. So, Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, original came out in 1984. This was, and I, I joked about this a while back, and then I realized that I know it's a bit more true than I wanted to admit at the time. Freddy was, like, probably the most recognizable icon to come out of the entire decade that was the 80s. Which speaks volumes about how bad the 80s were, by and large. But this was a crazy, you know, it's one of those stories. And to anyone out there listening, if you haven't seen the documentary Never Sleep Again, uh, the Elm Street Legacy, the Elm Street Legacy. It currently streams on Netflix, so if you're a Netflix subscriber, it's four hours long, give or take. I might be misremembering that. It's long. I think four, somewhere between four and five hours. Yeah, but it's and, like three minutes, three hours, 58 minutes and change, as yeah, I seem to recall. Four hours. And it's a wonderful <laughs> documentary about all of these movies. And you get some great backstory, you get some great insight, and I would encourage you all, if you have the time and the inclination, check it out. It's the, awesome. The really, thing, the really interesting thing about it is when I was kind of boning up for this week's show, I popped in my old 
old and beloved, I should say, uh, two-disc in Pinafilm DVD special edition of the original Nightmare on Elm Street. And, of course, that includes its own making-up documentary. Folks, it's, it's absolutely astounding the difference between watching a documentary that is put together by New Line in which sometimes every now and then when they're talking about a lackluster chapter in the franchise's history, you still feel like telling the people on screen, okay, that's good, now move over and suck on the right one. <laughs> and a movie that is produced, backed, and narrated by no less than Heather Langenkamp and actually takes a really extensive, no holds barred, holds no punches, brutally honest sometimes look at a franchise that for the most part is two excellent movies bookended by a cadre of lackluster sequels, and one that was actually miraculously still pretty good, probably for no small reason because it at one point involved the original creator. But the best parts of this are you are going to hear so many great stories behind each film. Uh, you will get to discover... I- I'm going to save the rant about the Nightmare on Elm Street 2 section for next show because my God, you are going to feel like you reek of bullshit by the time you get done with the lies of that one. Uh, you get to learn what an utter douche Ronnie, or not Ronnie, you, uh, Rennie Harlan. Oh, I, oh, I'm sorry, racist, horny douche Rennie Harlan was <laughs> during the during making of Nightmare on Elm Street 4. And what, oh, yeah. and what, and what an actually kind of, uh, almost kind of an endearing fanboy Ronnie you was all throughout the making of Freddy versus Jason, including him calling out, just kind of blatantly calling out one of the members of the main cast. Uh, it's it's four hours, so it's kind of not for the casual fan or not for somebody who doesn't get into all the inside baseball stuff about movies like we do. But if you're a horror buff at all, you owe it to yourself to go watch this and then go track down Crystal Lake Memories and watch that extensive lexicon on the Friday the 13th movies, because we are eventually getting to that series, too. So. I'll tell you what, as soon as Netflix starts streaming that one, we'll do it. Uh, correction, as soon as they get a Friday the 13th, aside from, oh, you meant just Crystal Lake Memories. I was going to say, because for some reason the new blood is available for um, instant streaming, but nothing else is. No, nah, just Crystal Lake Memories. I know the rest of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I had that problem with uh, when I was trying to find any... I was trying to find... Uh, God help me, I was trying to find Freddy's Dead on Netflix because God knows I didn't want to pay out of pocket for it. Um, yeah, apparently only Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is streaming on Netflix. Why? I have absolutely no idea. Why specifically 2, I don't know. For the same reason that Halloween... For the same reason that they stream Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers. Or not 6, I don't know, 4. Four or five. Oh, yeah. No, oh, it's so why, bad, it's now like public domain. Or why Mission Impossible 2, 3, and Ghost Protocol are streaming that the original isn't. That's actually the recent development. They had that up for a while. I know because I rewatched all of them back to back. I hereby well, propose Long Road to Ruin Netflix. Make it happen, guys. 
Actually, though, if you ever want a good laugh at just how astonishingly shitting their diapers childish Internet fans can be sometimes, go over to the Netflix Facebook page anytime Netflix announces something new and just read the comments. Uh, if, you're lucky, if, you're lucky, one, if you're lucky, if you're lucky, one in fifty will have to do with the subject of the post. Oh, I've been told many times by people far smarter than I never read the bottom half of the internet. <laughs> That's about right. We'd all be better and off. Yet, and yet, you are the intellectual savior of the four one one mania comment section. Hey, you and can't I mean prove that. that. <laughs> no, no, no. Hey, I I mean that as a genuine compliment. I mean of all the possible people you could possibly read on all of those articles, it's, quite frankly, sometimes I will just skim down until I see what you are AG Awesome have said. <laughs> yeah, because, have because otherwise my eyes are just going to feel dirty for what I know I'm going to read. Ugh. Somebody create an eye spray that involves bleach. We can fix some of these issues with. 411 Mania, you are the reason why Robert Winfrey sounds like Kit Croker. (laughs) (sighs) Yes, sir. We've been mistakenly calling you Sam the Eagle for so long, although I've got to admit your explosive rant about uh, Jamie Varner's Corner on one of the on one of the last ground pound radios was actually quite enjoyable. Thanks. It, it, it aggravated me. So. <laughs> All right, but this was as far as the Nightmare on Elm Street goes. I knew that this was. I had known beforehand that New Line was you know in you know, they were not the greatest studio in the world in terms of like depth of you know things they'd done or finances or the biggest when they got when they did this. I did not realize. This was a production studio, or it was a studio. It was actually just distribution for a while. I mean, prior to Nightmare on Elm Street, I believe their biggest claim to fame was they had caught they had uh, caught the lapsed uh, copyright or distribution rights to Reefer Madness, and were showing it at like midnight screenings on college campuses. I mean, that was their big claim to fame prior to this. I mean, the financial trouble and the financial jeopardy that everyone got put in. I mean, Bob Shea, the you know kind of guy who ran it. Uh, ran New Line was like had two mortgages on his house. The business was mortgaged. I mean, everything was on the line for these guys when they decided, "Hey, look, let's give Wes Craven uh, a horror." For, you know, Wes Craven has this idea. Well, let's make it. We'll put everything at risk, and we'll see if this pans out. I mean, it's one of those crazy things. And then, you know, I mean, naturally, the movie went on to become a big hit. We got sequels, and uh, this might have been like one of the pioneering efforts of wait the profitability pig hostage is now securely locked in the you know the basement let's not ever let it out but oh god Sean I mean this was financially speaking this was the rough equivalent of WrestleMania 1 to the professional wrestling fans out there my god you know what we between the three of us I'm sure could name so many movies that either managed to be miraculously outstanding despite having a shoestring budget, or you watch them, the budget was terrible, the people behind it clearly had no idea what they were doing, 
and the result is something that is god-awful, but still charmingly entertaining in its own way. In its own way. In this case, the first movie was definitely the former, because when you watch this, the impression that you're getting is not that this was a movie that was made with utter desperation. You get the impression that every single person who made this movie, from the craft service guy who got up at 5 a.m. to slice bagels for Robert England to fuck around and eat off the sharp glove, to Wes and Heather and Robert and John and John Saxon and fuck me running, I'm blanking on the name of Heather's mother, um, the actress who played her. Uh, Sam just mentioned it. Ronnie Blakely? Ronnie Blakely, yes. Sorry, had a a momentary brain fart there. Just from top to bottom, A to Z, everybody was just whole hog into this. And the fact is, they got so inventive and displayed so much ingenuity and got so outside the box to create a movie that bent kind of the fabric and the perception of the reality of it, like, well, only one movie before it, and that's Phantasm. That's about the closest comparison I can make to a movie that really went the route this one did as far as being just a complete mindfuck at times. And they managed to do it with nothing ever really coming across looking cheap. Whereas nowadays we would have, and in the case of the remake, did get forced, pixelated, glossy, shiny, happy, rendered special effects to make these things try to seem real. In this case, it was things like, okay, we need something where it looks like Freddy is actually trying to push his way through a wall and get at Heather. Okay, we're going to make a wall of this new shit called spandex and just have Robert press his face against it. That's what we got to work with. That's what we're going to use. We need to turn Captain Barnabas Sparrow, the Mad Hatter Barber of Fuckfuck Street, into a towering column of blood from within a bed. No, we didn't get something that looked like it was rendered by the lead programmers of Naughty Dog or BioWare. No, they actually took a fucking room, turned it the fuck upside down, and went kerblooey with the blood just right down, just right downward, and just shot the whole thing, and that, and that was that. You want a fountain and of blood? You got a goddamn fountain of blood. And 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 almost in the process killed everybody. <laughs> oh God, yes. Oh, and this is the other. This is the other great reason to watch the doc on Netflix. You are going to find out what literal physical peril these people put each other in to make this thing. Um, we are talking the equivalent. We're talking the equivalent sometimes to if you're a wrestling fan out there. The stories of Sabu super gluing his cuts clothes, or um, Axel and Ian Rotten going out there with glass tape to their fists, 
or actually letting New Jack fucking staple gun people in the forehead like they were goddamn corkboards. Um, stories about Robert, Robert England sometimes forgetting when he had the actual sharp glove on and when he had the fake one, and occasionally <laughs> accidentally cutting someone with it. Um, as, as you just mentioned, yeah, uh, the, the electrical disaster that was trying to film what I can only hope one day becomes a reality, Johnny Depp being liquefied. <laughs> um, it's just these people earned their bumps and bruises, and they were going in on a movie that everybody involved at the top end of the production, from Wes Craven to Bob Shea, were quite literally bankrupting themselves to make. I mean... And it shows in every single scene that, yeah, maybe sometimes they were just working with the best they had, and sometimes it might it definitely show the age. But, goddamn, they were trying to make the best of it. And you also got to think about how much better most of the effects in this look than the sequels that would, be, that would come four to six fucking movies later. Uh, it's crazy, some of the crap that went through. Okay, Matt, I want to go to you for this one, because, and part of this is because uh, last October, I believe, I was, when I, on my podcast, Everyone Loves a Bad Guy, cheap plug, yay me, I had Sean on, and we specific, I devoted the entire month to famous uh, Halloween-style horror villains, and Freddy got his own podcast, because he's Freddy Krueger. So I know Sean's opinions, and I've, he and I talked at length about this, so I want to go to you for this. As a character, when you see Freddy Krueger on screen, or when you get maybe just the silhouette, or you know, how did he translate for you on screen? What about him kind of got you to pay attention? Um, visually, you know, um, for me, when, you know, when I was a kid, because, you know, like I said, I grew up on, on Nightmare on Elm Street, um, it was always it, the effects tended to, you know, the effects tended to come first. You, you know, the, the Elm Street series was always the, the movie series where they were doing effects work like nobody else had done before. But as far as Freddy as a character himself, actually it was more the, you know, it, it, was, it was the... Uh, what set him apart from everybody else was that he actually had a voice and he actually had a personality. And Robert England, you know, owns, to this day, owns that character and, you know, gives it this life that you, you that nothing, no other horror movie character has ever had and probably ever will have. It's this persona of, you know, this gleeful, you know, maniac that... Um, you know, when it's done right, because, you know, Robert Ingram's always a sport, even when he's given a shitty script to work with, and God knows he was given some shitty scripts to work with. Um, but when you really get him right, you strike the balance between, you know, between this guy who's, who's wisecracking the next minute and, may, you know, and making you piss yourself the next. Um, I know, you know, me personally, that I guess we'll get to part three later. Uh, part, you know, Elm Street three probably has the best, you know, balance between those things. The first, the first Elm Street movie uh, is definitely more horror than comedy, and in, uh, in, as far as Freddy's persona, but he's still, you know, doing these these 
dark, you know, humorous things, you know, you know, licking Heather, Heather Langenkamp through the phone, you know, I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy, That's that sort of thing. It's funny, but it's also goddamn terrifying if you think about it for longer than a second. Just a little bit. <laughs> All right. As far as, uh, I... I'm not going to run down the first Nightmare on Elm Street. I don't want to do a plot synopsis. I, I will for some of the other movies. I'm not going to do it for this one. You should know the movie. If not, you have the internet, everybody. You're listening to this via the internet. Look it up. I- I'm going to be a little bit lazy about that this time around for this movie, because I feel like you should know the basic plot structure. And I just wanted to ask you, if, as far as this one, Sean, and what's your favorite thing about if you had to pick, like, one scene where you could just... I mean, if uh, some magical world where, you know, you had to sell someone on watching these movies, if you could pick one scene, what would it be? Oh, God, if I had to pick just one scene from the first nightmare? You know, like a three-minute oh. scene, not like a screenshot or anything. <laughs> uh, well, you see, my thing is, the, the scene that I would actually pick would be the entirety of Tina's death. I mean, it, it, okay. feels bad. it feels bad to pick something that's that early, but that's the best combination, I think, or at the very least, it is one of the best combinations of everything that makes this movie, from Robert England's performance, in which, unlike a lot of other actors, he doesn't look like he's fighting the makeup. He's making it a part of it. He's making it, he's using it to extend his performance. It's, well, okay. And again, ha-ha, funny enough, good comparison, Johnny fucking Depp. Always looks, always looks like he's fighting the makeup. Always looks like he's acting against it. Like it's a challenge to him. No. England is so dynamic he made this a part of his character. He took the fact that the glove was a little bit on the heavy side uh, for his for his scrawny body to handle and actually made that one drooped shoulder kind of a part of Freddy's whole thing, uh, a part of his me- a signature part of his mannerisms. And then, as he put it in the documentary, he added just, he's learned it enough to know to add just a little bit of a touch of Jimmy Cagney's kind of wide, defiant gangster stance. And he would work in little things just that, that would happen throughout, throughout the shoot and make that a part of his performance. You've got the inventiveness of a lot of the special effects. And actually, this is the first time in the movie we see the upside-down room effect during what is not a jokey, funny, ha-ha kill, but just something that is completely, utterly visceral and brutal and, you know, it, and just I don't think, in my opinion, would be quite topped in those categories until we would get to Wes Craven's new nightmare when they did an homage to that scene. So, yeah, I mean, it just every everything about it from the top from the timing and pacing and mood of Charles Bernstein's score to uh, the performance of. Blanking on her name again, the actress who played the actress who played Tina, who has now grown, who has now grown up to look like 
Speaking of actresses whose names I'm blanking on, the actress who played Dexter's whiny wife. Uh, uh, Julie Benz is who you think is there. As for <laughs> Tina, it's as for Tina, the, the actress is Amanda Weiss. Amanda Weiss. I knew it was Reed or Weiss or something like that. I don't know where my head is tonight. Because um, <laughs> I I'm going live with you guys. I'm not I'm not resorting to Wikipedia quite yet. So, I am. Yeah. <laughs> That's, That's how we fact check. Yeah. You know, even even uh Jesu Garcia, uh, who's credited here as Nick Corey, getting slammed around the room helplessly while she's being dragged up the ceiling and gutted and then finally just plopped onto the bed. It's it's one of the most perfect kills in horror history. Uh so, if I had to go to somebody who's a real strong stomach horror fan, not somebody who's just a little bit on the on the frail iffy side, hi Mark. Um, but somebody somebody who can really stand their ultraviolence, that would definitely be the one I would go with. Just from the time you first hear the hear and see those pebbles being tossed against the window all the way right up until um, Tina goes sploosh. Alright. So. Ben, same question. You got a you got a sequence in here that you just love and would absolutely use to sell the movie to somebody? Uh, I would say um, I can't make it... I, I, I can't not replay the scene of Freddy pushing himself, his face through the wall... Uh, I can't not replay that. Like, any time I watch Nightmare on Street, I always end up playing that back. That is, like, you know, visually, you know, I'm, you know I, I'm always looking at, you know, how stuff looks and how things are lit and how things are shadowed. Like, that is one of the most convincing practical effects I've ever seen. And, it's, and like, like Sean was saying, uh, Spandex, it's, it's the most dirt simple thing you can do. Make a, you know, make a fake wall cover with spandex, light it like, you know, to make it look like a regular wall and push somebody's face through it, and it's absolutely terrifying. Um, that stands out to me, um, which, you know, and, you know that's, that's sort of the beginning. That's, that's sort of the foreplay, if you will, for, you know, what happens with Tina, you know, only a few minutes later. So that's, that, that's the standout to me. That's what I always... You know, that's that's what reminds me. That's, that, that's what I think of when I think of, you know, the original Elm Street movie is, is that scene. And, and to think, to think they use the exact same material for, to create that effect and to create that mood and to that end that would later turn Pamela Anderson into a pubescent goddess figure to millions of I'll-be-in-my-bunk teenage Baywatch-watching boys. And probably more than a few girls. Well, so it's the material of a million and one uses, you see. <laughs> At least. Is there anything even... that magic? Is there, is there anything that magic stuff can't do? Really? <laughs> you know, I could probably think of something if I really sat down and decided, all right, what can't it do? But that I'm not going to bother with. You know, I'll submit the question to the MythBusters. We'll let them deal with it. <laughs> There you go. The rest of us will just, you know, we'll just be grateful that, hey, look, spandex. 
All right. Okay. 80s would never be the same again. Experiment number one. Hey, Carrie, get back here. We need you for this one. (laughs) Oh, I smell a lawsuit. All right. All right. This movie... Okay, the last thing I want to talk briefly on about the movie before we kind of move on to a bit of legacy, some of the financials, all the fun stuff... I want to touch briefly on the ending. So, Ben, I want to go ahead and start with you. The ending to A Nightmare on Elm Street, um, they all, it, it seems like Nancy has finally triumphed, and there's a, de- and a, there's a bunch of debate, and, well, there's theories, I wouldn't say healthy debate, but a bunch of theories about what the ending actually means. I have no Wes Cravens, but for those of you who haven't, I will briefly describe this scene. Uh, following defeating Freddy, which Nancy does by turning her back on him, no longer giving him energy, not being afraid of him, something along those lines, and that sucks all of his power out. She beats him. That's the sum total here. She beats him. Uh, she goes outside, and the sun is shining brightly again. She gets into her boyfriend's car. They all go into school. He puts the top up, and it's got the red and green Freddy stripes, and then... they. They drive away, she, not listening to her screams of horror. Her mother gets sucked through the very small window in the front of the door, and that's kind of where we fade out. And you're left with a sense of, you know, with you're not quite sure what's happened. So I'm curious, I mean, apart from what, you know, other people have said about it, I'm just, I want to know where you kind of stand on this one, Ben. Where, what, did, what did the ending mean to you? Um, I always thought it was, you know, aside from, you know, all of the stuff behind the scenes where, you know, some people wanted there to be set up for a sequel and others didn't, I kind of rationalized it as it was meant to be made unclear, like, whether or not that was still part of the dream. And if you see, like, you know, it's it's really hazy and everything's kind of in soft focus and, uh, you know, there's cheerful music playing, and then, like, in the last couple of seconds, everything kind of goes to hell, and the car drives away, and the little girls are, you know, jumping rope ominously on somebody's front yard, which, you know, who does that, you know? So, it's, uh, I always figured, like, you know, it, it was kind of, you know, that last, one last final, you know, screw you, you know, you know, trying to, you know, mess with your mind, like, is was that all a dream? How much of that was a dream? Where did the dream end? Did the dream end? You know, question mark, big question marks. This is kind of like the original Inception, right? <laughs> well, something like that. Well, in, in a way it was, because you got to keep in mind that when Wes wrote this movie and when they got done making it, there was never any intent to make a sequel. No, there wasn't, and it's one of those things where I feel like, and this goes, you know, 80s, I'd say even some of the 70s movies, as far as horror goes, for some reason, they started throwing in maybe the odd kind of open-ended ending, and it's meant from a narrative standpoint, maybe it's a twist, maybe it's a screw, you know, whatever it is, there's a little something, and then as we move into we have to have the profitability hostage, all of those became, hey, look, it's open, we can make a sequel. And personally... No, go ahead, go ahead. Well, that actually, like, if you look back, that ended up becoming a trademark of every single other Nightmare on Elm Street movie, too. 
Yeah. I mean, the only thing I was going to say was, you know, from a contemporary standpoint, if I go see a horror movie nowadays, I'm more shocked if we get a straight if we get a straight ending than I am by some kind of last little screw you or screw with the audience or we'll leave this open for a sequel moment. I am so much more surprised by just a straight ending than I am by, oh no, a little, here's a little bit of screw you. Or screw with you. I mean, I just... It got to be a bit much for me as far as... I mean, and the fact that people are still doing it. Because everybody wants to make a franchise nowadays. Alright, but... Sean... This movie was made on, what, a $1.8 million budget, give or take, oh. and it... Uh, now, now it is Wikipedia time. <laughs> which, okay, uh, I'll, I'll, be, now, I'll beat you which there. I will now, which, which I will now open up in a second window because I am working while we are chatting. Okay, um, yeah, $1.8 million budget, most of which came from mortgages on the houses of the producers and directors. And, and probably a few Yeah. And it made $25 million. Mm-hmm. And we have clearly hit profitability. So yay us. I mean, this is kind of what every... This is, this is your dream scenario, more or less, for a low-budget, low-distribution. I mean, this was not you know, a big blockbuster release. It was a bit smaller. It was what they could do with it. And they made money fair amount of money. Well, is when you get into some of the behind-the-scenes stuff. Well, no, they made money, but the vast majority of it went to people who like held the notes, if I could use a bit of old-timey parlance for being in debt. But, I mean, this was a huge success. I mean, by, you know, for, by all things, you know, from every measure, this was a success for them. So, yeah, I mean, it was, and unfortunately, as we're going to see, I mean, yes, this week we're talking about the good movies, but sometimes the very worst thing that can happen to your movie is that it can become iconic. Because that's a very short step away from you forgetting what inspired everything that made people really love the first one. Yeah, it's, and, it's dangerous. Oh. And you know, once once more, we got to make the Hellraiser comparison. Although in this case, I don't think the way we get from one being from the first movie being great to the second movie being laughably hysterically awful to the point that it goes around the bend and actually becomes amusing to the point of part three actually being good is quite so random because I think everybody knew after they made A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, which we'll get into at length two weeks from now, I think they knew that was a mistaken direction. I think they knew there was no further they could take it that way. So instead, they reversed course and decided to take a script that somebody else had that somebody else had written, and I believe, if I remember correctly, I believe they adapt they adapted that into Nightmare on Elm Street Three: The Dream Warriors. 
And a little bit. Uh, hang on. Yeah. Ben, you wanted to add one more thing to close out the discussion of the first one before we move on to three? Yeah, just before we get too far into this, this I'm, I'll try to keep this as short as possible, but this is something that I promised Sean I was going to do and I promised another friend of mine I was going to do, which was um, I had a... I had a tangent. I had absolutely nowhere else to discuss this. Um, oh, but it was. Uh, sorry, I can't believe I, I can't believe I forgot about this. Yeah, I'll just I'll just lay yeah, out. Yeah, don't worry about that. No, I called it. No, I I call this how they could have saved Johnny Depp. Um. <laughs> oh yeah. All right. Yeah, I had. No, I always had, this was me and, and uh, a couple of friends of mine screwing around, like, you know, talking, you know, talking randomly about this movie when we were watching it one night, and there, were, there was probably some alcohol involved, but whatever. Um, I always figured, you know, to set it up, you know, Johnny Depp has one of, you know, arguably one of the most infamous deaths in the movie. He gets sucked into a bed, and he gets expelled from the hole in the bed by Freddy Krueger, uh, blood first. Um, it's as, if anybody hasn't seen it, and why wouldn't you have seen it? But it's as gruesome as it sounds. It's awesome. It's probably my personal favorite death in the entire series. Um, but it's set up that uh, you know Nancy calls you know calls Glenn's house because she's got this plan to uh, you know to catch Freddie to pull him out of the dream. She needs Glenn's help to do that. Uh, and she tells him, you know, famous line in the movie, whatever you do, don't fall asleep. And, of course, like an idiot, Glenn falls asleep. Um, she has one chance to save him. She calls his house. Uh, his parents pick up the phone. She tells them she, need, he, she needs to talk to him. Uh, it's very important and very urgent, I believe, are the exact words. And because her because Glenn's dad's a gigantic douchebag, uh, he hangs up on her. <laughs> Here's how you rectify that. Very simple. All Nancy had to do was call Glenn's house, tell either or both of his parents, I'm getting a little bit worried. I, I was late this month, and I'm worried I might be pregnant. <laughs> The scene cuts back. The scene cuts back to Nancy. Uh, you hear over the phone Glenn's parents. Glenn, get your ass down here. Guaranteed, nobody in either house sleeps that night. Guaranteed. <laughs> that's how you save Johnny. <laughs> I imagine we'd also, as we're watching Heather listening to the phone, we get a kind of an homage to a Christmas story where you go, "What? What?" and then you hear flesh being smacked and someone screaming, oh, what did I do? What did I do? <laughs> that, honestly, that was what I was hoping. I was hoping they would do something like that in the remake, and we can add that to the very long list of things that I hoped that they were going to do in the remake that they didn't, and I'm sure there'll be time enough to talk about that later. But oh, it's boy. a missed opportunity, I think. <laughs> So, yeah, that was... Someone else is going to steal that idea now that we've put it out there, but that's a good idea. Yeah, well... Oh, God. Now I have visions of teenage Johnny Depp getting his ass kicked by his dad. (laughs) There you go. It's a happy Well, now that would just... Well, that would just be the best Christmas ever. (laughs) Oh... Uh, 
All right, but we have profitability at this point, so it's a, 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 we make a sequel. Now, we're not going to delve too deeply into the sequel here, uh, Freddy's Revenge, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, because uh, we're saving that for next week. But again, as far as the movie goes, we have profitability. And New Line is still getting its legs under it. We're trying to expand the business. And Freddy is money. So we're going to make a third one. Now, the third one, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, has... uh, This script is so... It's not quite hodgepodge. As much as, say, I think it was, what, five? That was just, like, handed through seven different writers. And a couple of those were writing teams. Mind you, so two people on a team. And and that movie showed it just absolutely from start to finish. Ugh. All right. But this one, you had a couple of guys. Wes Craven had an idea. He had some input on it. Then the final kind of two guys who got a hold of this and wound up, you know, giving us the final thing that we have are you have Frank Darabont and the guy who wound up directing it, whose name I cannot remember off the top of my head. Chuck Russell. Thank you very much. But we have some talent, you have some talented people here who maybe, I mean, they don't have Wes Craven's same vision as evidenced by the fact that this is, like you said, I'm kind of with you, Ben, when this is the movie that kind of balances Freddy's ability to have a personality with, no, he's still going to kill you in horrible ways. And it's, it's a really, and as evidenced by the fact that I don't think a single other movie in this franchise gets the balance right, it's a tricky thing to do. But we get a surprisingly good movie out of this, and we have Wes's involvement, uh, Heather Langenkamp comes back as Nancy. We get some a, a solid narrative this time around. And we get a really fun movie. So, Sean, I'm, I know you're more on the spectrum of Nightmare on Elm Street 3 is kind of where things go off the rails, or at least start going off the rails. That's not entirely accurate. Okay, um, hang on. Let me rephrase then. We get the train back on course a little bit following 2, but... Someone has moved... At this point, the rails have been moved, and by moving a little piece of steel a couple of inches, instead of winding up in St. Louis, we wind up in Mexico City. The difference here is... And, and the thing I was, kind of trying to, I was kind of trying to get at before... before we had to kind of go back to Ben for a second, because I almost forgot his, his wonderful Johnny Depp rant... Uh, I love was, it. <laughs> was the fact that, for one thing, the X Factor in any of the really great Nightmare on Elm Street movies is Wes Craven having even a remote involvement in it. And in this case, he wrote the first draft of the script before they brought Russell and Darabont in to polish it up. So he gave them a good start. He gave them a good Freddy to start with. Um, Freddy was not one big gay joke in this movie. Because I'm sure that even though it obviously made enough money to warrant a third movie, New Line watched Nightmare on Elm Street 2 and probably figured when they saw the profits from it, my God, we dodged a bullet. Let's do it again. (laughs) 
Um, and, and this time what we got was we got the last time for a while that Freddy would be truly menacing and scary. And it struck the right tone in pretty much ignoring that anything in Nightmare on Elm Street 2 had ever happened. And more or less picked up years removed from Nightmare on Elm Street. The first one. And in this one, they tried to push the envelope a little bit and make Freddy's kills a little more elaborate, a little more thought out than the first ones were. He, he wasn't quite so precise in his psychological torment in the first movie because he didn't really need to be. In this one... He's he's performing some surgical strikes on these kids. He is really going deep to mess with them. But he's not doing it in such a way yet that he's devolving into just the sad self-parody that every that almost every movie after this would plunge him into. And it was all still done with a sense of of menace and a sense of hopelessness and not necessarily that you're just kind of wasting time with the cannon fodder until you get to see how Freddy's going to off the next one. The kills are still scary in this one. They're still graphic. Um, I'll be honest with you. The, uh, the pseudo-marionette kill, I don't know what it is about that Something about that just makes me cringe and just makes me uncomfortable every time I watch it. Sure, yeah. Oh, I love that kill. Of, that, yeah, it, well, yeah, it's terribly effective. But that's one of the ones where when you see tendons pulled up out of somebody's limbs and they're being used as marionette strings, just, oh, that just makes you cringe. It, that's one of those moments where you do have to kind of tell yourself, it's just a movie, but still, goddamn. <laughs> um, however, and go ahead, folks, fire all the shots at me you want about this, because I'm about to skin your sacred cow, and I'm about to put it over the pit and start turning it while I whistle a jaunty tune. I fucking hate your favorite line from this movie. Quite frankly, I know you all did. Ah, welcome to prime time, bitch. And then he puts his head through a TV. Yeah, it's funny. No, actually, it sounds kind of corny and forced, and I blame that line for every single goddamn stupid wisecrack I had to listen to in the movies that followed it until Wes Craven's new nightmare when Wes said, yeah, daddy's home. Step aside and let me show you how it's done. <laughs> it's not uh, even the most because I, and yes I do blame that one goddamn kill because that is the one that everybody remembers this movie for and that well, is the one where I'm fully convinced that Bob Shea saw that and that is where more dinosaurs kicked in with, 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 when they when they hired radio Euro trash to come in and make the Dream Master. They told him, yes, yes, more of this. 
more Womp Womp Freddy. Every time he makes a kill, I should be able to play the sad trombone music. Oh, come on, it also led us to Super Freddy. Yes, it gave us fucking Super Freddy. Thank you for reminding <laughs> me of that, Robert. And I mean that in the, sense of, in the sense of Sideshow Bob muttering, yes, yes, we shall never forget the canon. <laughs> but they got away with it. They got away with it this once because the rest of the movie, goddamn, it's one of the few times somebody else took over the franchise and it actually worked. You even had Angelo Badalamenti um, doing the score instead of Charles Bernstein. And for those of you who aren't familiar with him, uh, Angelo did one of my favorite soundtracks of all time, or one of my favorite scores of all time, and that's the score to David Lynch's Lost Highway. Nice. You want to talk about an ominous, threatening score. Um, But otherwise, it's a movie where it's still very cerebral, and that's what's meant to drive it. It's still driven by the adults not believing the kids and still not buying that Freddy is really out there, really out there doing what he's doing. You've got the development of Nancy coming back for one more showdown with Freddy. It's a true continuation, and much like I could say about, oh, how do I want to put this? I saw X-Men Days of Future Past finally this weekend, and the impression I left the theater with is this is the level of quality in a sequel that we were owed after X2 that we never got, and now we've gotten it, okay? This is the sequel to A Nightmare on Elm Street that we deserved in the first place. Uh, If only they found a clever way to retcon 2 out of existence, like this one did with all the other X-Men movies. Well, in this... Well, yeah, exactly. But it it was the last time that it really would have worked, and actually, to be perfectly honest, I would be totally okay if this had been the last time we saw Freddy until Wes Craven's New Night. Because it's the last time anybody really understood what a good Nightmare on Elm Street movie is supposed to be. Yeah. Uh, ben, I'm curious. Since he brought, since Sean is not a fan of your primetime, you're welcome to primetime, bitch. Which is coincidentally my aunt's favorite line in the movie. Uh, <laughs> I do everybody feels differently about it, and I'm not going to lambast you. It's your opinion. I'm curious if, Ben, do you agree with his perspective on that, or do you have a different one? No, I'm not I'm not with you on that one, Sean. I, I love that scene. <laughs> I always have. That was, you know, that's, uh, that's up there as far as, like, the parts of that movie that I remember the most. Um, it's a corny line. It's, it is... Uh, I don't care. It doesn't bother me. First of all, you know, once again, like I go back to the effects. I, I this could I could consider this the movie that that may possibly have had. If you're talking about best pure special effects, you throw out you know the script and the acting and, and whatnot. This may have had the best pure special effects in the series. 
Um, mm-hmm. Part four has its moments, and New Nightmare has its moments, and um, but this one made. I think it pushed to the limit at the time with what you, what you could do at the time in 1986. It pushed to the limit the concept of of a person who could become anything in dreams to scare you, to haunt you, and then to ultimately kill you. Um, and that's you know that you know the, the TV scene. You know it's it's gallows humor, it's black humor, it's black comedy, and and I always. I, I always associate that in my head so closely with Freddy Krueger that it doesn't bother me when I when when I see it, and it certainly goes way 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 over the top later on. Elm Street Five, you will have your day with me soon. Um, but in this one, no, I, I think it worked. I think it was like I said, the perfect balance between you know between the comedy and the horror. Um, they did some weird things. See, uh, they did some weird things with Robert England's voice. These weird, creepy modulations with his voice. Sometimes it was really deep, and sometimes it was really gravelly. And there's one or two times even where you actually hear his actual voice. And after you've heard his voice being, you know, manipulated all to hell, that almost seems the scariest when you actually hear what he, what you know, he really sounds like. Uh, you know, to me anyway. And you know what, I, I agree with you on And that's something that kind of stands out to me throughout the entire series. And yet, any other series I would be complaining about that, but here, it actually works in the fact that Robert goes back and forth like that more often than not. I mean, he... I mean, he wavers more than Gabrielle Anwar's Irish accent in Burn Notice. But, <laughs> it's, but it's like he's got... It's like that old saying, you have, to, you have to know the rules before you can break them. And Robert, all props to him, he, he breaks them pretty damn artfully. Yeah, and... As far as, you know, his, the other thing about that where other guys, it's also handled really well, not just by uh, Robert England, but by the production staff, by the guys who, you know, other times, you know, you get guys who have their voices dubbed or modulated or warbled around, and it's aggravating, it's grating. Here it's not. It's a really effective tool that they use to kind of display the sheer range that the character has. Because Freddy can do, you know, again, anything that he wants to, especially within the dream world. Now, I'll go ahead and give a brief synopsis here. Uh, again, just for those of you who don't know. Uh, the movie is kind of featured on Patricia Arquette's character, and a uh, serious credit to her for playing that character very well. I mean, she's a talented enough actress, but that was... That was an. It was a very sympathetic character that she portrayed, and just wound up. I mean, not working at all when they recast her in the next one. But hey, what are you gonna do, right? You got no one wants to work with Rennie Harlan. But it focuses on a bunch of kids in well, an well, asylum. Well, what am I supposed to asylum? Sorry, what was that? Someone wanted badly enough. Wanted you badly enough to allegedly sleep with him. Uh, which is just sad. I mean, I have to imagine that's a terribly unpleasant experience. Oh, Tuesday night. Why? 
Why are you actually named Tuesday night? Who told you this was a good idea? I don't know. But it focuses around these kids who are, for want of a better phrase, in an institution. I think they're in technically a sleep inst- I can't remember the specifics. But they all are afraid of falling asleep because when they fall asleep, Freddie menaces them. Heather, uh, who has become a sleep specialist... Uh, following the events of the first nightmare on Elm Street, arrives at this facility. She's trying to help them. She discovers that they're the last of the children from uh, Elm Street whose parents killed Freddy, and he's now seeking his revenge. They're the last ones he has to kill. And uh, they wind up trying to fight him in the dream realm, because in your dreams, again, you can do anything as well. Freddy just also can do anything, and it... Uh, they wind up killing, uh, again, they wind up defeating Freddy by finding his body and burying it in consecrated ground, as opposed to any old ground. And uh, we lose people along the way, including including Nancy, uh, which was terribly sad, but Freddy gets her before he is laid to rest. And uh, we lose some people along the way. We get some cool stuff in the dream world. There's a really interesting, uh, a couple of interesting interactions between Nancy's father and what is somehow the spirit of Freddy's mother. We get a little of Freddy's backstory. It's a really interesting film. And again, if you're a fan of horror, I, I shouldn't have to explain to you why I love, why it's so interesting. But I I want to go to you for just a second here, Sean, as far as this goes. Sure. This was again a wildly successful movie from a financial standpoint. It could have been the last, as you mentioned, from a narrative standpoint. Um, oh crap! What was it I was going to ask? Okay, uh, very briefly, did you did you uh, find it well done? The fact that they were able to balance kind of the two I say two narratives. It's two story arcs kind of going on at the same time. In the sense that you have Nancy and the rest of the kids trying to fight Freddy in the dream world, and you have her father and, I think, the priest, who are trying to locate Freddy's body and stop him that way. Because I've found that it takes a very kind of deft touch to manage a couple of conflicting or you know, simultaneous action and story arcs. And did that, was this one okay for you? And I hope I explained this properly. Did... Did it detract from anything? Were the cuts from one from one uh, you know story to the other? Were they all okay? I mean, I, I want your opinion on that. No, I mean, I I thought they balanced it perfectly. I mean, the, the, the doctor was sort of a do nothing character. I mean, he was. You could have really cut him probably largely out of the movie, and just probably gotten more punch out of actually having. Nancy be the recipient of all these of all these revelations about Freddie, and it probably would have been actually even more effective, considering that she's the one who's kind of been doing all the legwork. She's the one who's kind of been on the path of discovery when it comes to her enemy the entire time. Uh, makes a lot more sense, in my opinion than necessarily having this totally new Bill Maher-looking character. He does look like Bill Maher. I, yeah. I've been trying to place him since I re-saw... I've been trying to place him since I rewatched it, and you're, you're dead on it. He looks like Bill Maher. I, yeah, I, I actually had to go check the IMDb page uh, when I was watching it last night to, to see who he actually was. 
And, I mean, it works, but at the same time, why? You, you got Nancy right there. Just I, I might have... Go ahead, Ben. Yeah, I might... Uh, thinking about this, I, I might have well, one reason. I don't know if it's necessarily why they chose to do it or not. Um, and even if it was necessarily the best way to go, but I get why. Because um, in, in, the, in the movie, Dr. Uh, you know, Dr. Gordon, um, who's the psychiatrist, I, I would guess he's supposed to be kind of you know, the audience proxy in that he's the guy, he, he's the outsider, he's the non-believer, he's the one that uh, is, you know, separate from all these things going on. Aside from the fact that, you know, when the climax of the movie is everybody in the dream world fighting Freddy and you want Nancy, like, in the middle of that, you don't necessarily want her outside of that, you kind of have to give that role to somebody else and somebody who's removed from it, Um you know, everybody else, all of the other kids are affected by this. They're all, uh, you know, they're all affected. They've all had nightmares or they've all, you know, lost friends. And, you know, in Nancy's case, she's, you know, looked him in, you know, she's looked Freddy Krueger in the eye and lived. And, you know, um, you know, that's one, you know, that's one type of character that you want a perspective on. But you also want the perspective of somebody who's completely outside of that and who has to just kind of, you know, go with it and and, um, and just as, you know, like the, the nun was saying, you know, you have to act a little bit on faith, which was kind of a theme of that movie as well. I, I wanted to ask you something really briefly. Um, two things that I really liked about this film and then I want to uh, kind of move on, but... As far as Freddy's kills, I mean, you mentioned the marionette doll. We've talked about the TV, and both of those are really good. Oh, I remember what I wanted to ask you. So I'll get to both of you in just a second. I just want to say my piece on these two, and then we'll move on to that. The visual of that wheelchair from hell that Freddy uses to torment the paraplegic kid. You know, it was so bizarre. Until, and for me it was, you know, almost, it was almost comical for a minute or two when I saw it, and then I realized, no, that's probably what someone who can't walk would think. And that would be like their worst nightmare. Totally. And then, and then I have, uh, I really liked Freddy killing uh, the other chick by turning his fingers into syringes and overdosing her. Yeah. My one thing about those two kills, though, is... Now, for one thing, and this is going to sound really morbid of me, and it's going to make me sound like I like I'm a total gore hound when it comes to horror. But this is one of the rare times when my problem with the drug addict kill was actually they didn't really show enough. I mean, they you could have maybe shown something more along the lines of her body really kind of kind of withering away and being and kind of being sapped of all its of all its marrow by the addiction. I would have been okay with just he injects her to the point where she has uh, what I assume to be heroin coming out of you know her eyes, ears, nose, and mouth. Something something like that. I mean, 
come on, because in the first movie, you know, you flung Amanda, you flung Amanda Weiss out of a goddamn room and then dropped her into a great big red puddle of herself. You mean tell me now is the time when you're going to start holding back? And I imagine that had to do a little bit with budget and timing issues, but... Well, oh, okay. this, well this movie, hang on. It's a cheap cop-out, and I'll admit it, but by the same token, this movie came down to the wire as far as its production schedule went. It did. It did, but, but still, I was disappointed because I felt like there was so much more they could have shown there. And really, I felt the same way about the Wizard Master Kid and the fact that after all that, all that we got as far as a kill was just Freddy picks him up by the scruff of a neck and just stabs him in the gut. That's it. You know something? Um, that's something that I like. I would love to know. This. They didn't cover this on Never Sleep Again, and I don't know if there's anything more to it, but... For somebody, trust me, I've seen Elm Street 3 enough times to where, like, I'm, I'm analyzing frames at this point. If you look at the absolute last frame of that scene, it looks like Freddy pulled something out of him. So I, I was convinced, and I thought the documentary would back me up on this, that there was, like, a few frames missing that would show that he actually ripped his heart out. Um, I hope that exists somewhere, because that's what it looked like, and that that would have been awesome. <laughs> and maybe I wasn't maybe I wasn't paying close enough attention and I missed that. But to me, I mean, it was comparable. Well, what I would compare it most to, it was comparable for as elaborate as that whole setup was with the wheelchair and everything. It was more comparable to Freddy, to Freddy stabbing John Saxon in the testicles and flinging him across a junkyard and impaling him on a spike. Uh, well, you know, we all kind of wanted which, to do which, that, which, I think. Which was, a, which was a much less thematic, you know, kind of kind of cerebral kill. But it, it felt like a lot, a lot of setup for not much of a payoff. It was the equivalent to, it was the equivalent, you know. Brock Lesnar going straight Hulk smash for about 20-some minutes on John Cena in the finish of the match is Brock runs off the rope, Cena hoists him up in the AA, hits it, one, two, three, pin. Cena pops up like a well-cooked Pop-Tart and cuts the promo about how he's going away for a while. Yeah, I actually I mean... You know, if you're, if you're going to spend all that time on the giant wheelchair and everything and on the lightning effect, at least give a satisfying payoff where Freddy really does kind of give him one good one good fuck you when he does really kill him off and not just some pithy line about not believing in fairy tales. I don't know. My personal thing would have been he stabs him, he reaches his hand up, like, kind of into his chest, and just looks at him square in the face and tells him, you know, magic's not real, right? And then yanks his guts out. Even even that would have been better. And did either of you, when you were watching this, just just to fuck around a little bit, when the kid pops up and starts with the lightning, did any of you actually start yelling at the screen, lightning bolt, lightning bolt, lightning bolt? <laughs> 
I'm almost no, positive I, I have at least once. Well, you know, he could have he could have won if he had the Snapcaster Mage to Lightning Bolt from the graveyard. And now I've just outed myself as a magic nerd a little bit, but. Well, I was, you know, I was I was going for LARPer humor. You went for magic, you know. Potato. <laughs> All right, the last thing I wanted to ask you guys both, and just kind of real briefly, because I want to get to at least the next one and start that with our live time. Uh, they revealed a bit of Freddy's backstory here, uh, specifically kind of how he came about. And this is always tricky when you deal with horror franchises and you reveal more about your villain. Because very frequently, you can wind up sympathizing with them if not handled properly. And then we get, oh, we're rooting for Jason, or Michael Myers is awesome, and we'll pit him, because we kind of want to root for Michael, we'll pit him against this evil coven, and all that fun stuff. The remake. I disagree with your assessment of the remake, but we'll get to that in a couple of weeks, just a little bit. So I just... So I just wanted to comment, I just wanted briefly, did the way they handled his backstory, did you like, because I enjoyed it, I really thought they struck the right balance of, okay, we're going to reveal a little bit, but you're not going to sympathize. I mean, kind of in the vein of my, one of my other favorite reveals about uh, where we get some backstory for a villain, and that was uh, Saw 2, when we learn a bit more about Jigsaw, but he never becomes sympathetic. I, I felt they struck the right balance here, so I just really kind of quickly wanted to see if either of you agreed with agree with my perspective, what your own is. So, Ben, my, I'll go ahead and go with you first. Okay. No, I'm, I'm very glad you brought this up, because if not, I was going to have to interrupt again, and I don't want to do that, because I really wanted to get into this. I have, I have a good deal to say about this, but, yeah, uh-huh. I'm, I'm with you a lot. I'm, I'm with you on this. Um, this is one of the few times where a horror villain's origin is revealed, and I think it actually works, and I would think it works very, very well. And if I had to take a guess, and you brought up Saw 2, and you brought up Jigsaw, and I think the common denominator between both of those characters is um, they're presented that, you know, in in, in Jigsaw's case, he w- he's still a person. He's still a human being with a personality and with a character and with presumably a past and and present and future. And Freddie, you know, he, you know, what kind of a human being he was is, is, you know, another matter. But he was a person with a personality, with a character uh, that, you know, that was more interactive with both, you know, the the characters in the movie that he, you know, that he dealt with and with the audience – um, you deal with other characters. You have, you know, your Michael Myers, your uh, Jason Voorhees. That's more like, you know, fear of the unknown. You know, the, the the less you know about them, the scarier they are because they don't talk. They're these, you know, unstoppable forces, and they work better that way. Uh, once you start knowing too much about them, then they become too human, and the thing that made them scary in the first place starts going away. In the case of Freddy Krueger, what makes him scary is that he was a human being and he was just as big a, you know, terrible, murderous scumbag when he was alive as he is, you know, now that he's, you know, haunting children in, in, in their dreams. So 
like I said, this this was, you know, you do it with other characters and, you know, hi, you piece of crap, uh, Hannibal Rising. Um, <laughs> and it didn't oh, work, God. Worked quite as well. And thank God the show was slowly but surely retconning that. I, I know you, I'm pretty sure you watch Hannibal Roberts. I'm I do. Out there. I'm a huge fan. Yeah, I I was screaming into walls because I had no way to talk to about that season finale, but you, we'll get into that another time. Anyway, yeah, uh, I, I think I had a huge I had a huge bit of fun with that season finale. So you yeah. invented, but I mean, that. what? So you you even invented to me about that, as I recall. I did, but I mean, well, I'm trying to get you to start watching it, but you know, I don't want to, you know, I'm not pushing too hard because then you'll rebel. So, <laughs> like you do. Um, but yeah, like certain villains are scarier when you don't know their backstory. They gave Freddy Krueger a backstory that was every bit as terrifying and you know completely effed up. You know, son of a you know bastard son of a hundred maniacs. It was about as disgusting and terrible an origin as you could think of. And it works. It works so well for the type of character that he is, you know? And that's, it, it ended up adding to, you know, to what the character is instead of taking away from it. All right, Sean, your perspective on Freddy's backstory? It's perfect. It is pretty much ideal. Because when it came to Jigsaw, we had to have a character wherein his motivations were actually complex and interesting enough that we said, okay, I completely disagree on every level with everything that you're doing. But I do at least understand your motivations well enough to see how you reach the conclusion that this was the way to go. In Freddy's case, we didn't need any of that. So all we needed is just Oh, so that's why you're a bastion of pure evil. Yeah, that makes sense. I can see that. And it works. We, we didn't need to go any deeper than that. We didn't even really need the flashbacks that, that we got in Freddy's Dead. Uh, just, it, it's just enough of kind of a, a mythical backstory to kind of just keep him as the boogeyman, so to speak. It, it, it's like the kind of thing that you would actually hear just whispered around a campfire around somebody or, or around a bar about the town sicko. You know, I heard he, I heard that his mama was raped by a hundred maniacs in a mental asylum and he's the baby of one of them. It's a campfire story, you know? Yes. Exactly. That's what Freddy Krueger should be. He should be a campfire story. That's, that's the whole reason why later on in this movie, the rationale behind, and, and the way that they found to keep him away from Springwood was to just erase him from existence, was stop telling the stories, stop even confirming that he ever existed. Stop and having kids. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, in that sense, here, yeah, it's just the right amount of backstory. And that's why, again, that's why I really think that as far as the proper actual 
lineal Nightmare on Elm Street canon goes, I really wish this had been the last movie. I, I really almost wish they had not done just uh, a fourth and a fifth and a sixth movie and kind of resolve what happened to Jennifer and what happened to Kincaid and what happened to Joey. I know you have to because it's horror tradition that if you survive a sequel, you will not survive the next one. Yeah, there is that. The black, well, and if the black <laughs> dude survived the first one, you know he's dead, like, you know, T-minus, you know, two seconds into the next one. <laughs> no, I saw this cover. the black dude dies first. You grab it. <laughs> All right, well, unfortunately, for those of us who enjoy good movies, uh, the profitability hostage did not escape the basement. I assume it was vigorously applying the lotion to its skin, lest it get the hose. Because we got... This movie was made for $4.5 million and made almost $45 million in the United States. We have now, you know, moved the decimal place... Moved the decimal one whole place. We're, this is serious profitability we're talking so, of course, we move on, and we move on, and we move on. And we're going to get to some of those next week. Because uh, Nightmare on Elm Street's 4, 5, 6. Uh, let's see, 4, 5, and 6. We all just kind of wish we're gone. For one reason or another. And we'll, we'll get into all those in a couple of weeks or so. Come back. <laughs> we encourage this. But we've all made, we've made money, and then until they decide, and I'll just very briefly, uh, Freddy's Dead, the final nightmare, released in 1991, was meant to be the final chapter. It was meant to actually be the death of Freddy. And that's all well and good, but then a few years later, hey, we're coming up on 1994. This will be the 10-year... This will be 10 years from the original Nightmare on Elm Street, and we're a production company that could use a minor infusion of cash. I assume the meeting went something like that. And Freddy sells. So what can we do with this? I, I, I imagine the production meeting went something like that. It's similar to the meeting I imagine that uh, Paul Walker had with his financial advisor who said, shut up, make Fast and Furious movies, everything else you do loses money. Now, not quite that bad in the with New Line Cinema, but money talks. So, Sean, go ahead and give us a little bit of backstory about what we got for the uh, you know the ten year celebration, which is uh, Wes Craven's new nightmare. We got Freddy going meta. That's the short version of it. Um, what we got was basically Wes Craven came home. Um, Wes really was never exactly completely down with Nightmare on Elm Street continuing past the first movie. In fact, he was really, all things considered, pretty adamantly opposed to it. Uh, however, in this case, well, and it led to him and, uh, and Bob Shea really having kind of a deteriorating, very tense relationship over the years. But... In this case, Wes had an idea. Let's structure a fictional kind of meta-narrative around how the rise of Nightmare on Elm Street as a franchise has not only affected 
the people that are involved with it, but how it has but, but kind of making a metaphor out of the impact that it's made on consciousness, on fans, and just kind of make one big love letter to the absolute best moments of the franchise. And you'll notice very conspicuously that it is really, really rare that this movie ever rips off of the sequels. By and large, it sticks about as much as possible to strictly referencing and tipping its cap to Wes's first movie. Uh, I, I think the most the most memorable nod you're going to get to any of the sequels is the fact that at one point when Robert England, actually Robert England, dressed up as Freddy, not actually Freddy, pops up on a talk show to survive Heather Langenkamp, who is playing herself, is you get a nod to the second movie when he tells the audience you're all my children now. I well, think that's appropriate because that's probably the only decent mo- uh, moment from the second movie. That, yeah, that, that is absolutely it. But otherwise, what we also get in terms of Freddy himself is Wes doesn't necessarily stop at just taking him back to where he was in the Dream Warriors, or in the first movie. He actually brings him back more sinister and more brutal and more sadistic than he's ever been. In this one, Freddy is not playing games with any of his kills. He's not really messing around, well, with the exception of Heather, of course, with the really elaborate psychological torture. Uh, he's making the most of his supernatural abilities for damn sure, but for the most part, he's just being straight up brutal and playing on all of Heather's worst memories of of making the first movies and bringing the first bringing the first movie and to a certain extent the Dream Warriors alive just one moment after one moment after another and. I don't mind saying this is, I think, the most pants-shittingly terrifying that Freddy has looked in any of the movies. Absolutely, bar none, it is the it is quite easily the scariest Freddy we've gotten in the entire series. And yeah, that's one of the things about. I mean, the Freddy Krueger makeup, which. Despite having, you know, we all know what it's kind of supposed to look like. He was burned. It undergoes changes, not just from artist, from movie to movie, and in some cases because you have different makeup artists doing it, but you have different ones from artist to artist. And some of them, you know, they they skid a bit towards the. I don't want to say silly or goofy, because that's not the right word. But it it in some cases it kind of looks like makeup, and it's not Can quite. Su- yeah, go ahead. Can I submit to you that in some of the sequels, the word you may be looking for is half-ass? That's probably about right, yeah. 
that yeah <laughs> yeah that's that's correct thank you <laughs> i don't know why that escaped my mind at the moment but yeah so we get a scary looking freddy in this one the makeup is done correctly and it doesn't look half-assed or almost goofy in the sense that oh look makeup but it really does convey kind of what he what this uh, evil entity wishes to look like yeah Uh, I will give a brief attempt at plot synopsis here, and I say attempt because whenever you do something that, for want of a better phrase, is meta, and I, that word became so overused in so many ways, and I hate saying it in some respects, but in this case, it's accurate. Now, the movie follows Heather Langenkamp playing herself and her husband, who... They use the name of the guy she's actually married to, but an actor instead of the actual special effects guy, and their son, yeah. and turns out Wes Craven, playing himself, a huge stretch of thespian skills, I'm sure. I have to dig at some of these people on occasion like that. Like Bob Shea, it's Bob Shea. Man, he's really, you know, stretching the boundaries there. But anyway, he's working on a new script for another Nightmare movie, and slowly, we're not quite sure, uh, bad things start happening to Heather and her family. Her husband is killed in a traffic accident caused by what amounts to Freddy Krueger. She goes and talks with Wes, and her son is slowly kind of like being possessed or menaced by Freddy. And she goes to Wes, and he explains that, well, I'm having these dreams wherein an ancient evil that thrives on destroying innocence was kind of captured within the story I told about Freddy Krueger. But due to no more movies and product dilution and all that fun stuff, he's slowly escaping. He likes looking like Freddy and doing what Freddy does. So he's sticking in that form, but he's trying to get from the metaphysical realm into the physical realm, and I'm writing this other story to try and contain him within it. And we get the big showdown between Heather and this version of Freddy, and... A lot of other people die along the way. There's a lot of fun stuff. Here's my one thing that I'm going to say about this movie that's somewhat negative. Not negative, even. It's just a little goofy. I kept looking at that kid. uh, Heather's kid. And I kept waiting for him to say, Boys have a penis. Girls have a vagina. Because it's the same... It's the same kid. From who, play, who said Dude. that line in Kindergarten Cop? You, yeah, who, you beat me to it. <laughs> God. <laughs> I could never stand that kid. But, oh, God. Incidentally, I also love Kindergarten Cop. It has a... Yeah, not not a great movie, but I have... I, that was one of the movies I watched a lot when I was growing up, so I enjoy it a lot, and... But instead, I just, I kind of wish maybe, you know, we could have got a little bit of that in there because he did that movie first, so maybe the kid, I don't know. But I was a little sad we couldn't get a, a bit of that in there, but that's my one kind of funny moment in this movie is looking at him and going, come on, say it. It's your famous line. Why don't you say it? Uh, all right. Uh, ben, I want to let's go with you. This is like Mark. This is probably in terms of making an effectively scary movie. This is probably the best we've. This might be the best of the entire franchise, and that everything is handled so seriously. I mean, I in so in terms of trying to make just a strict 
scare you horror movie, it's hard to beat this one. I mean, Freddy here is not there to screw around. He's not cracking jokes. He's there to eviscerate you, quite literally. Mm-hmm. Um, Freddy's got a couple of jokes later on. They're still, you know, nicely morbid and, and still creepy. Um, I think this was Wes Craven. I, I think the theme that he was going for was to make like a like a dark uh, like a dark fairy tale because there are there are a lot of references to like um, I think it's Hansel and Gretel, especially towards the not end. The movie. Right. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's right, folks. Yeah, Jeremy Renner is diabetic Hansel. Sure, why not? Um, <laughs> that movie. Yeah, um, I haven't seen it, but I'll, you know. If you ever want to laugh at something, hey, watch it and have a laugh. All right. But, yeah, it, it played as kind of a, uh, a twisted fairy tale, and, and, and it also... The uh, the meta stuff worked, you know. It was it was actually kind of ahead of its time because um, you know a couple of years later, uh, Wes Craven would do kind of this, uh, some similar things in Scream. Um, I, I think he did a lot a lot of the things a lot of the meta stuff and self referential stuff I, that he did in Scream. I think he did he, he did most of them a little bit better in New Nightmare um, because because in, in Scream there was there was a little bit too much. There was a little bit too much eye winking and a little bit too much grinning at the expense of the material. Um, in New Which Nightmare, it, yeah. Well, <laughs> what are you gonna New do? In New Nightmare, in New Nightmare, it had it all had some dramatic weight. Like it, 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 it had a reason to exist. Um, and also, I, I gotta say, like. Out of all, Heather Langenkamp, I always liked Heather Langenkamp as, as, as an actress. She was she was great in, in all the Elm Street movies. She's particularly good, and she has to carry this movie on her back like a pack mule 99% of the time, and she brings it. She, this is, in my opinion, that's, this is Heather's finest hour, you know, as an actress, uh, you know, in this series or really in anything else. Um, she, you know, uh, and you're seeing her as Nancy, but you're also seeing her as herself, and it brings up the el- a couple of elements of, of things that have happened in real life, because Heather Langkamp actually did have some, some dealings with a, you know, like a creepy stalker in, in real life, so they, they kind of work that as well into the, into the story in New Nightmare, and it deals with her paranoia, and it deals with her, you know, uh, her you know, worrying as a mother, and and her fears are confirmed, and, and then, you know, Freddie bursts, you know, into the real world, and all hell breaks loose. Um, my only gripe with New Nightmare is, and, and I, this has probably been brought up somewhere, I want to say um, any, any 411 readers, uh, Joseph Lee may have covered this, um, you know, cheap plug because he's awesome. Yes, yes. Uh, um, yeah, I, I tend to agree. If he said that, I, I tend to agree. They didn't go into uh, Robert England. You know, Robert England is a character in New Nightmare. He plays himself uh, in New Nightmare. They don't go into that. They show briefly, like he's being, he's having nightmares too, 
and he's painting these really freaky, like, you know, Francisco de Goya-looking paintings of Freddy Krueger, you know, tormenting innocence and, and stuff like that. And I'm kind of like, I want to know a little bit more about what's going on there. And they don't, they kind of gloss over it a little bit. And I think that was kind of a missed opportunity. Um, that's my only real gripe with New Nightmare. Otherwise, I think it's it's a great bit of business, you know. Uh, more Robert England on screen is always good. I thought he was criminally underused in uh, the episode of Criminal Minds that he guest starred in. He was a local police officer. I forget the episode specifically. But, but yeah, more Robert England. Come on. It's Robert England, people. Right, uh, very briefly, we're down to eight minutes or so of live time. So to everyone out there listening live, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks, and I will have the, the full show posted, the Long Road Ruin uh, Facebook page will have it as well. We'll have the full thing, because we are going to talk. I was debating how we were going to handle this, but we've got time. We've got the inclination, so we are going to tackle Freddy versus Jason. So here's my big uh, WCW Monday Night Nitro be suited. I'm going off of a WCW pay-per-view. Be sure to tune into Nitro to see what happened at the end of the pay-per-view. Because, We're so, out of come time! Take <laughs> it here! We're out of time! <laughs> this has been the greatest night in the history of our sport. Tune in next week when we'll have the next greatest night in the history of our sport. Anyway, enough fun at the expense of poor Tony Schiavone. That poor guy. I have to imagine <laughs> that was just the most miserable job in the whole world when he was doing it, so... I'm not trying to make fun of Tony because, again, that poor guy. But the circumstances were amusing. So, again, full thing will be posted, and you'll have us talking about Freddy versus Jason and uh, what we got out of that. So that's what's coming up next. I'm gonna get, we're going to wrap this up. Again, thanks for listening live. Come back, listen at your leisure, and have some fun with that. All right. With that out of the way, Sean, I want to mm-hmm. ask you something. Yep. I almost wish I had Mark here, because, and for one specific reason. I know Mark doesn't like scary movies. But there's something in this movie that goes on a little bit that for some reason I would love to have a parent's perspective on, and I don't believe any of us here have any children. Okay. And that's, it's not just the little kid. Because, again, we, we all kind of, it's universally acknowledged, 99.995% of all child actors are just tolerable. Well, no, they're bad. And then you have a few that are tolerable, and every now and then you get one that's actually decent. Uh, but the kid having, a, this is an odd thing, but the stuffed dinosaur, Rex, that he uses to ward off Freddy Krueger. I don't know what it is about that that really kind of, I, I don't know, it gets to me a little bit. It's something that makes perfect sense. It's, and speak, uh, just as me, as a kid who never had a lot of friends, and I had a lot of stuffed animals that I went into imagination land with, and, you know, kids do, but I did a lot. Something about seeing the poor dinosaur with the slash marks across it, and the kid going, well, Rex keeps him down there, they were fighting. I don't know. What about that? That kind of gets to me a little bit. And it's... I I just kind of wish we had a, you know, again, a parent on here so that they could kind of speak to that maybe a little bit. But I'm curious about, you know, both of you. I'll start with you, Sean, because I framed this one for you. But, I I mean, what was that for you? I mean, it might have got a little bit overplayed later in the movie when the kid decides, hey, I'll cross a freeway to get my dinosaur. But 
I mean, that whole little bit of, you know, your stuffed animal protects you from the boogeyman. I mean, I don't know. I really, I like that. And it kind of, it's one of the things that kind of, it kind of gets to you for whatever reason. So how was that for you? I mean, did you, did you like that? Did it annoy you? You know, as I as I watched that more and more times as I've gotten older, because this this is one of my favorite movies, it kind of started making a lot more sense the more I really thought about it. Because Freddy's whole thing is that he brings your imagination's worst fears to the most vivid, horrifying life he possibly can. So if that's the enemy that's plaguing you and that's kind of the rules we've established, well, then it would sort of make a kind of, a kind of cosmic theoretical sense that if you're a kid and you believe that that's real, then the obvious solution would be believing that your toy, which you believe is real and which in your imagination is your true protector, that that's really the only thing that could possibly stop him. So, in a sense, it's, it's kind of a nice touch and there's a, there's a sort of there's a sort of finite kind of logic to it that I can appreciate. Um. So and, and it and it does it does kind of it does kind of grab at you a little bit because also remember that the whole reason Wes came up with this was he always said the the very worst thing in the world to him the most evil thing possible would be somebody who would hurt children and when you're a kid about especially about some about a, a kid about the age of what Nico Hughes is playing here yeah about the most Cherished possible things to you are going to be either a family pet, especially if you're talking about a dog, or a stuffed animal. So how are you really going to drive home just how just how truly evil Freddy Krueger really is? Or, or should, should I say this thing that has now embodied the visage of Freddy Krueger? And the obvious one would be, well, I mean, in this case, you know, we don't we don't have a dog that we can that we can kill, and that's usually a, a big no-no in most movies anyway. So, actually, the more effective thing is go after the one thing that really makes the kid feel safe, and that's Rex. And to kind of exemplify just how powerful Freddy has become. Okay, he has now shredded the kid's last line of defense, and the kid is now pretty much helpless. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it just goes to show that, and that's this is what I love about Wes is he's not your average horror writer in that he doesn't just think about what scares people; he thinks about why it scares them. And then figures out a new way to use that. At least, at least this is what he does when he's at his best. I mean, sometimes it's really pretty. Let's face it; it it's really pretty basic. It it really does come down to when you're thinking about something like The Hills Have Eyes or Last House on the Left. 
just it's there's not that much thought going into it. But then again, those were also very early Wes Craven movies. With this one, he uh, he really tapped into every uh, every facet of his background and every facet of science and psychology and what makes a human being tick and what makes a human being afraid. Alright. Um, all right, we are now like out of live time and we've got an hour of recording so I want to move straight ahead into uh, what maybe should have been the final entry but we get to Freddy versus Jason. At least in 2003. This was kind of the horror fans... I don't want to say wet dream, but that's kind of what I mean. We had all kind of thought about and we debated who's better, Freddy or Jason. And there had been debates and everybody in... Apparently every screenwriter in Hollywood or who was going to Hollywood had a Freddy vs. Jason script in their back pocket just because why not? I mean, this was the big thing kind of at the time. And... This was the and this was um ah, it's not really a good movie in the traditional sense of you know it's necessarily scary this is this is your monster mashup movie as far as horror villains go you just want to see Freddy and Jason go at it yep and we get a decent movie as far as that's concerned I mean there are some downsides and I do want to kind of briefly touch on all of those but um Ben when they released this movie uh. First of all, were you excited for this movie? Did you, I mean, because everybody I knew, you know, if you were a horror fan, you wanted to see Freddy take on Jason. So I'm curious, to, you know, your overall kind of thoughts on how on what went down with the film. Were you satisfied as a fan that we got a good, we, we got a throwdown between these two guys? Oh, oh, hell yeah. I was, I was excited for it to, you know, to come out. Um, and this was another thing they, they probably covered in the documentary. Um, at one point, New Line Cinema bought the rights to the to the Jason character from Paramount in the mid '90s, um, and they started producing their own uh, Friday the Thirteenth movies. They couldn't call them Friday the Thirteenth, but that's another thing. Um, in in the last couple of seconds of Jason Goes to Hell, before the movie ends, it ends with Jason's mask on the ground and Freddy's claw, Freddy's gloved hand reaching up out of the ground and pulling the mask down, presumably into hell. That was in 1996, I want to say. If anybody, either you want to check up on that for me? It was sometime in the mid-90s. From that point on, that had fandom, you know, racing about, you know, Freddy versus Jason. When's Freddy versus Jason going to come out? What's, good, what's it going to be about? How's it going to happen? Who's going to be in it? What's uh, it gonna you are be- correct. It was 1993. 93? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So, it's 93. Okay. Um, Freddy, Freddy versus Jason came out in 2003, so that's a solid 10 years of speculation about, like, how, what this movie is going to be and how they're going to go about doing it. Um, I actually saw it in the theater. It is the, I believe it's the only one of either franchise that I ever got a chance to see in the theater, and I'm really glad that I did. Um, it was a good time. No, it's not, it's not a particularly great movie. Um, there's a lot wrong with it. Um, some of the CGI absolutely sucks in it. Uh, some of it's not bad. being on screen. 
Was that? Kelly Rowland being on screen. I think that's the actress. Yeah, that was my favorite. No, Jason killing her. That was my favorite part of that movie by far. Um, well, let me say. Let me tell, let me say this. I don't know if you've seen that part in. Uh, if you've gotten that far in. Uh, Never sleep again. But when they talk about Freddy versus Jason, <laughs> apparently her death scene was supposed to be different. Yeah. To, the original shot, and for those of you who haven't seen the movie or the documentary. What ha- and the movie. I'm going to do both. What happens in the movie is she's slowly backing away from Freddy Krueger, who is now manifest physically in our world. And she's insulting him and backing up. And at the end, Freddy stops and looks at her and goes, and I forget exactly what she says, but he, he kind of motions for her to turn around, and she turns around and Jason like hacks her in half with his machete. And it's great because the entire movie, you want to see her die. Yeah, and in those she last is, couple of seconds where she's making fun of Freddy, that's uh, that's a, a big reminder of everything that pissed you off about that character throughout the whole you know movie before that. Yeah, but apparently her original death scene was she's backing away from Jason, and she decides, she's telling him you know in kind of a riff on what how Nancy beats Freddy in the first movie. I, you know, I'm gonna, I'm not afraid of you anymore. I take back the power that I gave you. And she goes on one of those rants, and then Freddie taps her from behind and goes, "Hey, bitch, wrong one," and then eviscerates her. And I, I can't help but feel that would have been so much cooler. Nah, well, I, I'm not with you on that. I'm, my, my thoughts on that are, let's please leave, you know, let's please leave that scene in Nightmare on Elm Street out of this. Like let's not. I, I I get where you're coming from. Let's let, let's uh, not bring that scene is is iconic. Let's let's not let's please not give it to Kelly Rowland to to ruin. Uh, please. My my thing that I'm kind of remembering about about this um, about that right now is actually the fact that in Never Sleep Again, several people made a point of saying they explicitly had quite a problem with Kelly calling Freddie a faggot. That's one of those yeah. things. It's like, eh, I don't know. It was the it was you know the early two thousands. The word was overused. Yeah, no. Still, I don't know. It, it's one of those things. Maybe you, somebody on the script or who saw it in production and whatnot said, you know, we should, you know, maybe this one shouldn't get through. We can come up with something else. Yeah, just add that to the pile of things that were wrong with you know with that with her and her character in that movie. Just she couldn't have, yeah. she couldn't have died soon enough for me. Oh god, I was terrified that she was going to live. Let me just say that because you know, why might I might I ask? I have to imagine that Kelly Rowland's character was in some way related to Reggie the Reckless, and we finally got to correct that monumental cinematic mistake. Oh, God. God. <laughs> because that obnoxious little twerp didn't die either. I w- didn't die, and I wanted him to die. Oh. So I imagine he had a kid, and it, and it grew up to be Kelly Rowland's character, and Jason finally got to rectify the fact that he let Reggie the Reckless out of that movie alive. <laughs> God, I thought I was obscure. <laughs> I hate that. Dude, I, 
Dude, I'm laying down. I'm laying down for that one. Feel free to pin me for the one, two, three, dude, because you got you got the obscure reference uh, world heavyweight championship of of the night on that one. God, I saw that movie, and I hated him so much. Ugh, it stuck with me. It really did. How much I hated him. All right, oh, Sean. No, he was no, he's terrible. One of the worst characters ever. The most obnoxious. If you're gonna put an obnoxious character in a horror movie, they're supposed to die. Now there's a problem when you have an obnoxious 12-year-old, and I'm rooting for Jason to take him out with his machete. There's a writing problem there, but that's where we landed, and you didn't kill him. Part five, too, right? Was, was I think it was. Yeah, that wasn't even really Jason then. That was that's even <laughs> worse. <laughs> what the paramedic in the Jason suit? Uh, God, that movie. Yeah, no, uh, Sean, you were saying something. Anyway, yeah, Sean. <laughs> uh, no, I no, I, I pretty much made my point just that um, it seemed like she... Uh, she really... That, that one line seemed like, in ju- if we're to judge from Never Sleep Again, they really kind of went off on her, on her for that one. Um I almost got the impression that that was what influenced uh, uh, her particularly flippant death. Was just was just the fact that they really didn't like that one ad lib. Uh, you know, there are certain circles wherein you can say things like that, and I have to imagine a major Hollywood production is probably not one where you should slur the gaze. No, not not even a horror movie. Um, Although, actually, I got to admit, my my favorite part of the Freddy vs. Jason cast may very well have been Freebird, because well done, guys, well done. As Never Sleep Again insinuated, you did in fact make me double take for a second and go, Jay. <laughs> and uh, you know, and props to the documentary for actually getting Jason Muse on board to do even just. Just a couple of quick minutes. I forgot oh, about that. <laughs> I forgot <laughs> about that part. Yeah. Of, uh. of just totally lampshading the fact that after that came out, a bunch of people apparently thought that Jason Mewes was in it. He might as well, well have been. It would have been the best thing he'd ever been in. Oh, oh, no, hey, no. Hang on. You and I differ on this. I have a deep deep loathing for the collected film works of Kevin Smith. And I know you I'm not... Shut, I you know shut your whole mouth. I am the mother of all Kevin Smith fanboys. Hey, I can... You can do so. You can agree with... You can disagree with me. You can like the movies. I don't criticize them for being poorly made, and I don't mock people who like them. I don't. I very, very, very much do not. But it's comedy. Cool. Comedy takes all forms. I will, I will give the man this. I will, I will admit that he makes. You got to really look past the surface and past all all of the, all blue humor and how sophomore they can be. And he, and he really, he's not perfect. He's he's made some duds. To this day, I refuse to watch Zach and Miri make a porno a second time. Uh, I'm surprised you watched it a first time. You know what? I was optimistic. Okay. Were you just hoping and for Elizabeth Banks' nudity? Is that was that it? 
that was part of it. Um, <laughs> that happened. And it was also the fact that we had not yet seen just how irritating Seth Rogen could really be, and that he's incapable of, being, and that he was incapable of playing anybody except Seth Rogen. Uh, as far as Freddy versus Jason goes, Sean, you mentioned this. It's good for what it is. I'm just briefly curious. First of all, if you could improve. Maybe just one aspect. Well, like, and don't be vague as far as it goes. Like, oh, well, they needed a better script or cast someone besides Kelly Rowland. I mean, we're, we're kind of okay. We get that. If you could just take, you know, maybe a couple of things to improve the overall quality of this movie, what would they be? Because I have one very specific one that I know I would like to – I would have changed. And I'll get to that after, at the end of this. For one thing, give, for one thing, give Freddy a little bit more of a presence – um, it's, it's really more of a it's more of a Friday the 13th than a Nightmare on Elm Street and I'm more of a Nightmare on Elm Street fan uh, you kind of stole my thunder I was going to say you know Freddy kills exactly one person in that movie yeah, yeah me too Jason mows yeah. down like an entire high school which is what Jason does don't get me wrong I'm all for watching drunken stoned high school students get massacred in a cornfield Coincidentally, if you follow my YouTube channel, I'll have something along those lines in the next couple of weeks. Nice. Right. Um, Not bad joke, because high schools are graduating right now, and I hate teenagers. I kind of wish them but, dead. But well, anyway. But, but also, I, I knew that. <laughs> but also, the thing is, is when we do get some time with him, despite the fact that several movies have proven that the best Nightmare on Elm Streets are the ones in which Freddy actually gets to be really threatening and not jokey. They didn't even try. I mean, granted, I know you got to make the movie fun. I know you got to make it a little bit campy. I get that. However, Freddy's really barely interesting to watch when he is on screen. Because it's full of sticky kind of stuff like Freddy banging a camp counselor in one of Jason's memories. <laughs> Aren't you coming? Um, I'm trying, but this bitch is dead on her feet. Um, I mean, it, it's not like it's not like it's a terribly interesting cast, and it's not like you necessarily expect it to be, but still. That's another one where it leans more toward the failings of Friday the 13th. And that's the fact that at least in the best moments of Nightmare on Elm Street, we at least got some interesting survivors who were trying to evade Freddy. We got people like Jennifer and Kincaid and Heather. People that we actually become at least a little bit invested along the way. In this case... They're just typical teenage cannon fodder. So, again, that's another one where it's got a few more of the fingerprints of Sean Cunningham than it does the best moments of Wes. And, unfortunately... Would this have been better with more Scott Farkas? You know, actually, 
That would have been one way to approve. Well, yeah, because, I mean, we kind of gloss over this. We, we, we really gloss over it pretty badly, and actually, for his brief minutes on screen, he turns in a pretty good performance. Um, yeah, more time with that guy, by all means. Of course, the actor, uh, I just saw him in a really, really, really bad, like made-for-TV Animal Planet original movie. <laughs> it's like Attack um, of the Blood Lampreys, which is just the most ridiculous thing ever. Yeah. And I mean, when you're uh, when you're in the when you're in the hospital, you've got so much you could do there, and it feels so wasted because we're left to more cartoony, like Nightmare on Elm Street, four, five, or six kills, like. Uh, uh, well, especially uh, Freebird getting high. Oh man! I mean, uh. we we sh- we should have known it was going to be something like that. We knew that death was going to be cringeworthy and not in a good way. But what we got was really far dumber than anything we could have ever expected. <sighs> so, you get those. Oh, it's sad. I mean, Let me also say it, this: if you're worried about staying awake and you decide to utilize various chemicals, you don't go for the pot, people. You find Walter White, and you go for meth. Because that shit will keep you up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. So, Ben, again, if you could... If you could change... A, you know, maybe something... You know, again, Sean already mentioned uh, giving Freddy more of a presence, which I think we all feel is kind of is very important. Not to mention the fact that I, I get a kick out of this. Again, Jason massacres like this entire high school, but oh crap, Freddy might kill us in our sleep. Let's use this guy to fight him. Yeah, it's a good premise. That's that's a that's a good jumping off point. I don't mean like okay. You want to use Jason to fight him? That's one thing. But I mean, at this point, who's killed more people? You know, who's the bigger threat to your existence? I don't okay. know. Okay. Anyway, I apologize. I asked you a question and then cut you off. So that's cool. Now, um, two things. Um, one, yeah, like you were saying, I'll, I'll touch on it really quick, but I'll get into. Uh, I'll. Go with what I was saying, as far as having given Freddy more of a presence, they could have redeemed themselves because they had the scene where, you know, and it's a good scene in, you know, during the rave where, you know, uh, pre-Hannibal and pre-American Mary Catherine Isabel uh, falls asleep and Freddy's stalking her in the dream through the boiler room. That part's awesome, like, and it's actually the closest that Freddy gets to being scary, in my opinion, in that entire movie. And he gets screwed out of killing her. I was pissed when that happened. Like, <laughs> all they do is get, get, for Christ's sake, at least give him that death. It's not like he had that much more in the rest of the movie, but that would have been cool. That would have been a really, like, classic, you know, Freddy... Stalks, you know, stalks a teenager and kills her. That would have been great. Um, I always felt like um, they they did it. They did a similar thing in the remake where you know uh, 
the part in the remake where the kid backs up and, you know, Freddy disappears and the kid backs up and he Freddy's all of a sudden behind him and puts the glove through the through through his back and out of his chest. They could have easily done that in Freddy versus Jason with that scenario where like she's in the locker, she doesn't know where he is, she's backing up, backing up, backing up and all of a sudden he's behind her and you just see like a glove go come through you know, the closed locker room door. Like that right there, that's a kill right there that would have been awesome. It probably wouldn't have cost as much as the god-awful CGI that uh, in all the deleted scenes uh, from that scene that they didn't use. Um, that's one Coincidentally, thing. that's probably my favorite sequence in the entirety of the Nightmare on Elm Street remake. Yeah, well, it, it's it's good. Um, it's it's few and far between as far as good scenes in that remake, but uh, oh, I guess yeah. we'll touch on that later. Two weeks. <laughs> Two weeks. One other thing that I wanted to, one other thing that I, I have to mention, it's not it's not entirely a Freddy thing. It kind of sort of is, but it's also more of a Jason thing. You might know where I'm going with this. This was everybody's opportunity, like horror purists. They know, you know, Kane Hodder is the definitive Jason Voorhees. He played him four times in four different movies. This, that was the guy that they wanted to see go up against Robert England in this movie, and it didn't happen. They recast Jason uh, as a different, they, they recast a different guy. Um, weird bit of trivia that why the hell do I know this, but... The guy that they cast as Jason in Freddy vs. Jason is actually the same guy that Jason throws through the mirror in the diner in uh, Jason Takes Manhattan. Um, you know, do with that what you will. Uh, I, f- I figured this is the only time I'll ever actually get to use that bit of information, so there you go. Probably. Good to use That's it. Right. You have it for the obscure moments. you got to trot it out. That, that's All right. an excellent point. Why do you know that? <laughs> because Why not? I... I because I heard because uh, I heard I've listened to the commentary for Jason Takes Manhattan and I'm I'm pretty good with names so oh, they mention him by name. Uh, I kid I kid I I'm completely with you on that. Yeah, I love DVD commentaries myself because you do pick up all kinds of interesting things like that. Um, yeah, my my personal favorite being if um if you ever get a chance to listen to one of the early DVD versions of Stephen King's It. You get to listen to in the very first moments of the commentary track, um, John Ritter, bless his heart, claimed that Seth Green never went on to do anything else after this. Come on, you were on the same show together, people. (laughs) Oh, wow. And if, 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 if if he was kidding, it really didn't come across that way. You know, as good as John Ritter was, it wouldn't shock me if he was kidding and just refused to let anyone know he was actually joking. And to be fair, Seth Green is not exactly a luminary of anything. Oh, I wouldn't come say, on. I wouldn't say he's never been in anything, because that's just not true. You were both on Buffy, people. But I, like I would Seth say Green. that... People say... <laughs> No, no, it's, I would just say, you know, Seth, you know, and that also might have been done before Seth Green actually went on to do anything. Before he got his own 15-minute special on Cartoon Network. 
I I just like Seth Green for the simple fact that I know he's one of the few people on earth that are the few men on earth that are shorter than I am. So. <laughs> hey, you know what? I'm sure he'll take fans however he can get them. There you go. Of course, so will the rest of us. That's not a knock on the guy. But yeah, where was I again? Where is where is this going? Um, jeez. We, we, we were talking about DVD commentary, and I felt the need after making a little wisecrack about why do you know that to point out that, yes, I am kidding. I watch DVD commentary, too. Some of them are actually almost better than the actual movie. Um, I'll let, the, yeah, I love commentary. Well, right. it is, that was all coming back to just the fact that, you know, um, Kane Hodder kind of got screwed out of uh, playing Jason in what was supposed to be, like, you know, the big, you know, the this, this was, first of all, a big payday, and second of all, this was, like, you know, this was, you know, two horror icons going at it, and, and you know, Robert Englund was definitely going to be in it, and everybody assumed it was going to be Kane Hodder, and the reasons why they recast Jason were complete crap, uh they wanted somebody who who could emote better with their eyes because, of course, that's what you want in a psychopathic hockey mask-wearing uh, killer. Guy covered uh, in makeup when he's not wearing a hockey mask. Right. So, you know, that's that's one thing that I'll always kind of, you know, wish they had done better with when it comes to Freddy vs. Jason because, you know, aside from that, and, and, you know, the last, like, what, 20, 25 minutes of that movie are sheer, like, you know, Fan candy, you know, uh, you know, chop sake, you know, Freddie and Jason, you know, kicking the shit out of each other uh, in the goriest ways possible. And it's kind of everything that, as far as, you know, everybody's base desire to want to see these two characters fight each other, it's pretty much everything that, you know, that you could have expected. All right. The last thing I want to touch on briefly, then we're going to close up shop here. The ending. Now, I have a very brief rant. Not not even a really a rant. It's somewhat of an observation. But really briefly, Sean, who won? I'm sorry? Who won? Freddy or Jason? Oh, oh. Uh, I think Jason pretty clearly won. All right, Ben? Uh, yeah, I guess, it, you know, I guess the the ending of that was meant to be interpreted, you know, different ways, uh, but it was, it was a cop-out, Jason, Jason won. Look, because, because the simple fact is here, to put it in terms that'll be very familiar to Robert, and probably very familiar to you too, Ben, at least I think so, um, in this one... Yeah, Jason is basically GSP. Um, he, spent, he spent most of the rounds of the movie, including the critical parts of it, beating the ever-loving fuck out of Freddy right down to decapitating him. And at this point, the, the little wink at the end by Freddy, okay, you're now pretty much Nick Diaz complaint pretty much talk, still talking trash, saying I didn't really lose. Someone in my camp leaked that I was going to go for leg locks. Can I, um, can I 
try can I try a different analogy for the non MMA fans? <laughs> sure, go for it. Um yeah, it, it's the black knight and Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> Even better. Yeah. That I I completely can see. Yeah, I don't I don't know why I didn't think of that one first. Oh, <laughs> that's, awesome. that's awesome. All right, my brief tangent to Revelation Studios. Revolution. I forget which one. I think Revelation. The guys who own Hellraiser. Apparently, one of the initial endings for this featured them in Hell. That's where their fight took them. And chains with hooks come out of the walls, restrain both characters. Pinhead walks on screens and goes, Now, gentlemen, what seems to be the problem? Oh, God, yes. Now, hang on. I understand, okay, you maybe don't want to give up, right? You don't want to share things, you know, okay, I understand. I do. Here's my problem with it. Jason, Freddy vs. Jason came out in 2003. This is a little ways after Hellraiser 5, Hellseeker. Mm-hmm. If you had done anything approaching meaningful with your character, it, uh, after that opportunity presented itself, I would have said, okay, you were probably in the right. Instead, your greedy, useless, sorry asses deprived us of Pinhead getting one over on both Freddy and Jason in exchange for Hellraiser Debtor, Hellraiser Hellworld, and Hellraiser Revelations. This is, a, this is for you guys who made that decision. I'm gi- there's no video. I'm giving you all the double bird. Piss I'll on steal you. A lie. You could have given us a single mo- shining moment before dropping your pants and taking a gigantic, various bodily fluid motion all over your franchise and a character that I love. Screw <laughs> you all. There's my you, you could have put something on the screen that would have made Clive Barker stand up applaud and proudly proclaim, that character indeed came from my butthole. <laughs> <laughs> if, I can, uh, if I can paraphrase, um, Robert, I, I know you guys were talking about Preacher last week because I was listening. Um, I'll, I'll quote a line from that comic, and it's something. I'll paraphrase it a little bit, but it's it's something along the lines of uh, you know, you guys sure are tough on the people that love you. <laughs> yeah, that's directed, that's directed towards you know the owners of you know these various franchises because they are indeed very hard on the fans that love them. Uh gosh. <laughs> And it wouldn't have cost you anything. If anything, this is one of this is my other big rant on this. If anything, seeing your character, your intellectual property, displayed by the competition makes you want to see more of that character. This is one of those, I mean, it's like when, uh, for the professional wrestling fans, DX invades Nitro. Kevin Nash's response, seeing, uh, you know, the crew out there with their... Uh, you know, the truck with the gun on it. His response was, open the door, I want to go out and hug my buddy, because then I'm going to be on both shows. <laughs> and what are they going to do about it? <laughs> it's live. Uh, all right, that's my brief rant as far as that goes. Uh, 
that's going to wrap us up here, talking about the good entries into the Nightmare franchise and Freddy vs. Jason, which is just fun. Two weeks, everybody. The 17th. Come back here. Myself, Sean, and Ben. We're going to examine the Drek that comprises the rest of these movies. So if you want to hear us rant and rave and complain and pick things apart, that's going to be your show. Because boy howdy are we going to. Alright. Sean, what do you got to plug? Um... Not really all that much. Um, I'm getting ready to go on vac to go on vacation this weekend. Hopefully, if some things in my schedule provide. Um, otherwise, really, all I got is just yeah, the fact that I plugged everything else at the beginning of the show, and I'm going to be back to wrap up the series. And then in July, Mark comes back, and we're gonna suffer through three Transformers movies in preparation for possibly sitting through. A- let me also say, as a brief, let me say this briefly. About Transformers Age of Extinction, if I was not personally put off by, hey, it's Mark Wahlberg, one of the other guys in the world who might be shorter than Ben here, if I wasn't put off by that, you have Optimus Prime writing Grimlock. Now, to all the 13-year-old fanboys out there, it's awesome, and I get that that's your audience, and you'll make money off of them. To anyone who knows the characters... You have just caused me physical pain, sir. Shame on you. All right, Ben, what do you got to plug? Uh, well, hopefully you'll be able to hear me because now somebody's car alarm has gone off outside of my window. Now nah, you're good. Uh, okay. Uh, what do I have to plug? What don't I have to plug? Um, okay, the standard stuff. I, uh, I write, draw, uh, you know, self-publish a comic called Soul Exodus. You can check it out. You can uh, purchase comics. You can check out web comics on my website, soulxo.com. I have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash soulxo. Uh, under much peer pressure, I have finally gotten on Twitter, uh, twitter.com slash soulxocomic. Um I've been doing a thing um, the past mm, about a month, month and change, uh, called Sketchbook Saturday, wherein every Saturday um, I do about two or three short, you know, quick, you know, marker sketches, uh, various things, whatever happens to come to mind. Um, this past weekend I got retweeted by uh, international pop star Robin, who I had a crush on since I was, you know, a teenager, and I wish all of my teenage crushes worked out that well. Um, so, you know, that's, it's just designed, like, my, my thing is, and my philosophy is, I always try to make friends through art. That's how I got to know you guys, and that seems to have worked out really well. Um, so, yeah, that's how I'm trying to expand, you know, my, you know, uh, my reach and, and my art and get my art towards people that have not seen it before. Um, if it's cool with you guys, I want to plug some friends of mine, too. Um, yeah, go for it. Yeah, um, because hopefully, well, they wouldn't be, this is the overrun, they won't be listening, hopefully they'll download this. Um, my friends at madeoffail.net, who I do tons of artwork for, website artwork, site banners, 
uh, this, that, the other thing. Um, my friends, Dana and Angie in particular, that I've done a lot of work for them. Hopefully you're listening, uh, you know, on, on record. Uh, you guys are awesome, and, I'll, you know, I'm always happy to promote you guys. Um, uh, I also draw a uh, comic by the name of Revolution of the Mask, which I have not had a whole lot of news to, uh, to offer to anybody lately. However, um, Louis Lovehog, a.k.a. Linkara, who, uh, who is the creator and writer of the series, he's making some moves. He just got a brand spanking new website, atopthefourthwall.com. He is planning on putting the, uh, the, first, few ep- uh, the first few issues of the comic, uh, making them available on- online in some way. Uh, I jump in as the regular artist on issue four, and I will, you know, hopefully, you know, as far as I know and as far as I hope, I will be the artist for this series going forward, and hopefully forward is where we will be going very soon. So check check out Linkarn, check out Revolution of the Mask, and check out uh, our work together. Last thing, um, you know, just throwing this out there, I won't be exhibiting, but I will be in attendance at Special Edition NYC in, in New York City. Uh, let me get the date real quick because I'm an idiot. I didn't write down the date. I believe it is June 14th and 15th. I'll be there on the 14th. I'll be handing out flyers. I'll be handing out, uh, you know, uh, copies of my comic. Uh, if you see me, I'll probably be the guy in the Coheed and Cambria hat and the Jack Kirby t-shirt. Um, and, uh, yeah, if you happen to be in the New York area, check out Special Edition. They're the same guys that run New York Comic Con. They're a good bunch of guys. This is a very more comic book-centric uh, convention, and they're worth checking out. Uh, so support uh, support indies, support comics, and support Special Edition. That's all I got. All right. Let me go through my plugs real quick. I host the uh, 411 Ground and Pound radio show. It's a live MMA-themed radio podcast. It goes live every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern right now. At the moment, it's myself and Jeff Harris, and we are searching. If you're interested, I'd like a third voice. I like three-man formats. What can I say? I'm a sucker for what I know. I hate change, everyone. I really, really do. So, listen in. We talk MMA this week. We will be reviewing UFC Fight Night 42, headlined by Benson Henderson, taking on Rustam Kabilov, and previewing UFC 174, Demetrius Mighty Mouse Johnson versus Ali Bag of Donuts Bagatinov. And that's Mark's nickname for him, not his official nickname. So tune into that. We have fun. We talk MMA. It's a live call-in show. I give out the number at the start of every show. Call in. Your voice can be heard. My personal podcast here on the Rad Legend Broadcasting Network every Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern is Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. I focus on villains from all sorts of mediums, all sorts of shows. I just wrapped up my three-month, I forgot how long it had been going at it, until Jesse Starcher was kind enough to remind me and briefly run down all the titles I'd covered but I'm done with comics for the moment. I've closed Chapter 1. I'll be back some point in the future. I'm just taking a little break. So we're moving on from comics, but all of those in the past. Uh, this last one was myself and the aforementioned Jesse Starcher. We talked about a bunch of independent titles. The Walking Dead, Preacher, a little bit of Spawn. Um, 
Savage Dragon gets mentioned. You know, just some independent stuff. A lot of fun was had. Miracle Man, the other one we spent a fair amount of time on. So look it up here in the Rattletchin Broadcasting Network. You can find all of my past editions of Everyone Loves a Bad Guy, including both these fine gentlemen, both Sean and Ben. Ben was on when I talked about Spider-Man villains. Very educational as he was here. (laughs) Yes, you were. Very educational as he was here. Uh, this week at Friday, 9 p.m., Mark Radlich is going to be my special guest because he called dibs on The Simpsons, and I'm doing The Simpsons. So, nice. Sideshow Bob, Mr. Burns, Krusty on occasion, Mayor Quimby, <laughs> M- Nelson Muntz, Jimbo Jones, Kearney, all the villains of... <laughs> I get to talk about Arnold Schwarzenegger. I just realized that because he's president in the movie. But, so I get to talk about all of them. Tune in. We're going to have fun talking about The Simpsons. I couldn't go cold turkey from comics. I need something that's still animated. I'll probably be back to live action next week, or <laughs> the week after that. So that's what I've got. Uh, Sean, Ben, again, thank you, Benjamin, for being here. A pleasure having you. Look forward to the next episode with you. Sean, always a pleasure. Nice to see you, and hopefully uh, your relocation of the Fortress of Seanitude is successful and without incident. I'm not helping you move. Aww. Hey, I've moved way too much in my life. I don't feel like driving down to Arizona to help you move. Sorry. Pay you in beer. I don't drink. Gonna pay you in old duels. I don't drink imitation. Damn. (laughs) You you can't bribe me with alcohol or alcoholic substitutes. It's all right. I'll wish you the best of luck, and I would advise you, you know, find a good mover. Sorry. If I'm in the area when it happens, I will assist. I will. There's my promise. If I happen to be in the Phoenix area when you're moving, get in touch with me. I will help you move then. I will not drive down there to help you move. Yeah, it goes for anyone listening. Sorry, I'm helping a neighbor move right now, and I'm reminded of how much I hate it. <laughs> All right, we will be back again two weeks on the 17th, and we get to have fun dissecting and demolishing some of the other movies in this franchise. I'm going to leave you with more of the theme music, uh, the title card theme from Nightmare on Elm Street. So for Benjamin J. Cologne, for Sean Comer, I'm Robert Winfrey using Mark Rydalich's sign-off. Be well, be safe, and behave.